Well, good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. We're going to be going to England this morning, ancient England, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of years back in time, to connect to an event which occurred in the last few days in, of all places, Washington, D.C. You know now for the last week or two we've been following the accelerating political progression of U.S. government suddenly, out of the blue, yeah, right, taking the whole UFO phenomenon seriously. Well, tonight, based on research that Georgia Lambert has done, who will be joining us in the third hour, and fascinating new research by Maria Wheatley, who will be joining us momentarily, we're going to knit these two apparently disparate phenomenon together. And wait till you see what we come out with, all right? But to start, um, we're going to go do some news. I want to, uh, uh, for all you who are new to the show, and we're constantly adding people and subtracting people and adding more people, um, you want to go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our homepage. That's our URL. And tonight's banner at the very top, which is really elegant. I mean, it's... You know, visually, these banners are just something, you know, to behold. Um, It says, Ancient Messages Amid the Stones, with Wheatley and Lambert as the guests. So you click on that, that takes you to the guest page. And right under the guest page, right under the big banner that says, To Listen to the Show, you'll see fast links to items. Click on my name, Richard, and that will take you to my section of Radio with Pictures. And there, item number one... Again, we're starting with La Palma, and if you've been following the show, you know why. For those of you who are brand new, La Palma is a little island off the northwest coast of Africa, which is erupting. Hasn't done anything in the last 30-plus years, and suddenly, in September, it started doing its thing. Well, tonight, it has reached the level of the largest lava eruption from La Palma, from the volcano, in the last 500 years. The last time this much lava flowed from the vents uh, near the apex of the volcano was in the 1500s at some point. You can do the, do the math. A- again, the reason any of this is important is that there is a low probability that La Palma could give us a stunning shocking, catastrophic surprise, i.e. about half the island, if this eruption uh, increases, or if the gas pressure and magma pressure underground increase, or there is significant seismic activity from moving lava underground, there's a small probability that the island will finish splitting in two, which began back in the eruption in, I believe, 1949. And half of the island could slide into the Atlantic Ocean, which, according to some geophysical models, the first ones published uh, on this scenario were, I think, back in 2001, um, you could have what's called a mega tsunami spreading all across the Atlantic, north into Europe, 
east into the African coast, southwest into the Caribbean and the northern coasts of uh, South America. And needless to say, that would be a very bad hair day for everyone. Now, the good news is because of that link, if you put this on your phone, you will get alerts um, as to seismic activity and major eruptions and those alerts should dictate what you do next. If there is a, you know, like a seven or an eight earthquake, that half of the island could come loose. If the island swells like a souffle due to underground pressures of the magma moving upwards from the mantle, it could do the same thing. And that would create potentially this extraordinary tsunami. So you should have, if you're on the rim of the North Atlantic Basin and in the Caribbean or in uh, any of the low-lying areas around the coast of northern South America, you should have a go-bag packed. And when your phone says, whoops, the palm is doing something really weird, you should leave Dodge. You should head inland and go as high as you can go. Uh, On the east coast of the United States, We have the Appalachians. They're like 100 plus miles from the coast. Um, Remember that scene in uh, Deep Impact where the kids were on the motorbike or the the motorcycle and they kept climbing and climbing and climbing the foothills of the Appalachians and the wave kept following and following and following. Well, that would happen about nine hours after uh, whatever events happened around La Palma happened. So, again... This is a low, low probability, but it's not zero. And I know there are some news stories out there saying that this concern with La Palma is, you know, another fear porn thing. It's overblown. It's uh, just for clickbait, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Not here. Again, low probability events have a nasty way, if you give them enough time, of happening. And now we've exceeded the 500-year record of the amount of lava, the number of thousands of cubic meters of lava that La Palma has spewed forth. So eventually, with anything physical or geophysical, it's only a matter of time. Item number two. We're going to be talking a lot this morning about this rather astonishing conference that was held on November 10th at the National Cathedral in Washington, the Our Future in Space Conference, which had a really interesting roster of luminaries, ranging from the current head of NASA, Bill Nelson, to Jeff Bezos, who just launched uh, Bill Shatner, Captain Kirk, into space and brought him safely home, Uh, Dr. Avi Loeb, who's the guy from Harvard who is now setting up a listening post on the roof of the physics lab at Harvard to listen to and monitor UFOs. I mean, come on, Harvard places. We are in totally new territory. If not, Rod, thank you, the Twilight Zone itself. Oh, and then there was uh, Dr. April Haynes. I, I think she has a doctorate, maybe not. She is the current DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, which was a a government post created to kind of coordinate 
16, 17, or 18. They keep adding them, so I lose track. I think it's now 18 separate intelligence agencies gathering information all over the planet for the U.S. government. This all funnels through Ms. Haynes, and she in turn reports to the president and gives him a daily briefing as to what is going on both on and now apparently off the planet that could concern the United States. Well, Ms. Haynes, if you now go down to item number three, item number two is the two-hour YouTube video of the conference. I strongly recommend um, pending some rather remarkable developments that will be occurring here around all of this in the next few weeks. I may be able to announce something significant, I mean really significant, next weekend on Saturday night show. So you're going to want to tune in because I may actually be able to tell you something kind of mind-boggling. And as you know, since I deal with this stuff day by day by day, for me to say it's mind-boggling, well, it's probably mind-boggling. And I guarantee you, when, when we can talk about it, this all, all the pieces fit, and we're working very hard behind the scenes to make something astonishing and mind-boggling happen. If I can announce it next Saturday night, I guarantee you, you will need to get new socks. You will, it will take your socks off. It will knock your socks off. So get ready for that. Anyway, item number two is the conference which is going to be part of that conversation a week from uh, last night, leading to item number three. I mean, if you haven't noticed, there is this dramatic shift going on regarding the position of the U.S. government vis-a-vis not only just UFOs, but something even more far out. Because remember, UFOs are not equal to extraterrestrial visitations. A UFO is a sighting where the observer does not know what's caused the sighting. It could be a meteor. It could be, and it has been many times, you know, like Venus. People don't know the sky anymore. Or it could be a genuine extraterrestrial or even interdimensional vehicle. Did I say that? Yes, I guess I did. Okay. Well, Avril Haynes at this conference, item number two. In item number three, there is a remarkable story in the Hill which is kind of like the Capitol Hill newspaper that reports all the good stuff. And when it's in the Hill, you know it's kind of officialese for the positions of the Congress, the executive branch, um, the Supreme Court. If you read it in the Hill, it's been vetted again and again and again. You don't get in the Hill unless God knows how many eyes have seen it and signed off on it. So in the Hill newspaper for Capitol Hill, the official paper of, in essence, the U.S. government. Uh, Only one step closer would be the congressional record. Uh, It reports on Ms. Haynes' comments regarding um, the current U.S. Navy and U.S. Air Force um, observations vis-a-vis UFOs. In fact, let me quote exactly. Ms. Haynes, on the afternoon of November 10th, I'm sorry, the evening of, said, and I quote, the main issues that Congress and others have have been concerned about is the safety of flight 
and counterintelligence issues. Always, there's also the question of, is there something else regarding the UAP UFO phenomenon that we simply do not understand, which might come extraterrestrially? She said it, extraterrestrially. This is light years beyond any official position of the U.S. government on this phenomenon for the last, you know, 60, 70 years, since, since 1947, when the Air Force called press conferences and poo-pooed the entire thing. And, you know, then there was another press conference in the 60s where they termed them uh, uh, swamp gas, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of this is leading to item number four. This is now from Politico, which is an uh, exterior website which follows, you know, the turgid, you know, kind of uh, arcane politics of Washington. Believe me, they're very arcane. And so when you see it in Politico, it's almost as good as seeing it in The Hill. Anyway, in Politico, there is a story regarding Dr. Kirsten Gillibrand, who was leading a bipartisan group of senators to make amendments to the current National Defense Authorization Act, which is how we spend government money every year, you know, hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. I think the DOD budget now annually is something like $700 billion and climbing. Anyway, as part of that budget appropriation, that is going to work its way through the Senate now that a version of this has been passed in the House. Ms. Gillibrand has formally proposed with her Republican colleagues that there be established under the Department of Defense an entire office devoted to the analysis, the exploration, the mitigation, the political ramifications of etc 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 of ufos and it's really interesting what she says um in the piece as soon as it comes up here let me do a couple things here okay if you scroll down to the bottom of the piece she says um the first question i got when i got on the intelligence committee this was from her her sons was mom tell us about the aliens I go, Gillibrand says, I know nothing about it, she recalled. Um, I'm getting the coolest mom jersey for sure this year. Indeed, she's clearly enjoying her role, joking. This, of course, is the one I would disagree with because I don't think it was a joke at all. Joking how Congress oversight may lead to a congressional delegation visiting new destinations or dimensions. I mean, come on, folks. This is a U.S. senator, you know, from a very conservative part of upper New York state who's basically talking about, you know, a scenario right out of Stargate SG-1 where we send ambassadors to some other planet or some other dimension in response to them sending something or someone. Did you ever think you would hear or see or read particularly in Washington, of anything so extraordinarily bizarre 
and right out of the Twilight Zone. Well, at the risk of sounding slightly um, pompous, I think I've been saying for the last several years that I told you so. This is coming. The subject that used to be confined to this, these hours of the wee mornings before dawn now are encompassing mainstream news 24-7. So fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a very bumpy and extraordinarily interesting flight. And I have no idea where we're going to land. Gosh, ambassadors to another planet of the mouth of a U.S. senator in the 21st century. Which brings me to ancient, ancient terrestrial history. Because as we laid out last night on last night's show, and if you're not a member of Club 19.5, you better join quickly and listen to last night's show. It's a critical prelude to what is coming. Because someone, and I had two of them on last night, actually I had four of them on, have opened hailing frequencies with some of the folks who are dropping in. And this is repeatable experimental engineering and science. Um, And we're going to be discussing uh, more of this in the coming weeks. But until then, one of the key takeaways is we now have established in the numbers. Remember, it was this Victorian astronomer, um, Sir Arthur Eddington, who said many, 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 many decades ago in the early part of the 20th century, gentlemen, he said gentlemen because scientists at that time were mostly men, not women. He said, gentlemen, you do not have a science until you can express it in numbers. Well, last night's show was filled with critical, important, essential numbers. And those numbers take us all the way to ancient megalithic England, among other places. Which, of course, is why tonight we have Maria back with us. Maria Wheatley is a second-generation dowser, P.N. Master Dowsers, her late father, and she Chinese geomants. She's a leading authority on geodetic earth energies, ley lines, and stone circles. Maria has a, is an accomplished author of many books on sacred sites and dowsing. In 2015, she made a major discovery. In the Neolithic period, there was a royal priesthood of long-skulled, elongated people that made Stonehenge their spiritual center or capital. Across Europe and the British Isles, this enigmatic, long-lost civilization designed elongated-shaped monuments to, in Maria's model, reflect their skull shape. During the early Bronze Age, the long-skulled people were murdered by round-skulled people who designed round stone circles and created round barrows for their departed, reflecting the shape of their own skulls. Maria tracked down the long, elongated skull of the High Queen of Stonehenge and many others to reveal this secret history of Stonehenge. Anyway, there's a whole bunch more on her on her uh, bio there on the other side of midnight. But without further ado, Maria, welcome back to the other side of midnight. Hi, Richard. Good morning. 
it's really it's early morning. in the morning over there, right? It is. It's about it's a sort of twenty past five in the morning. <laughs> oh, dawn! My favorite time. Uh, sometimes, I mean, I always see it from the other side. So, what is your reaction to find, as you're going to hear in great detail in about two hours, that there is this extraordinary connection that Georgia Lambert has laid out between this current insane UFO phenomenon developing in the nation's capital here and the ancient moors and highlands and megalithic sites of ancient Britain. Yes, it's uh, it's very intriguing and the, the ancient sites do play a role, uh, you know, in the past and the present and I believe in the future as well. Well, that's where we're going to live, as Criswell used to say, (laughs) spending the rest of our lives. So you have some major new developments that you were uh, on the Halloween show. You just at the very end laid out something so remarkable that I thought we might start there. What was the new news? Give us some context. And then if you can kind of relate to what I'm thinking tonight, which is there's this extraordinary fundamental foundation between the ancient Britons, our ancient terrestrial Neolithic civilizations, and what's going on far, far upstairs. Yes. Well, uh, as you know, Richard, I've been researching Stonehenge for, for many years now. And uh, looking at some of the older reports that uh, the, you see, the early antiquarians around about the sort of 1700s, 1800s, and 1900s looked into a lot of the barrows and monuments that surround Stonehenge. And they, they used to write reports about them, and uh, they, got fi- they get filed away uh, in, you know, in museums, and, uh, et cetera. And in looking at some of these reports, I noticed that a long barrow situated quite close to Stonehenge on the northern side of the monument was one of uh, the most intriguing reports I've uh, ever read. And I've read most of the, the reports about the long barrows of Stonehenge. For people and who have report- no idea what you're talking about... Why don't do we have sure. images in your section of radio with pictures that can show what a barrow looks like, what the various barrows look like? No, but I'll describe one. If you Super. imagine, if you imagine a long barrow uh, which was built uh, with Orthodox dating about five and a half thousand years ago, is a long earthen mound. Some of them up to about three hundred and ninety feet long. Uh, on average, about 150 feet long. So imagine like the top of the roof of a house, and that's how the barrows were on the Salisbury Plain. So they'd be inside, basically as long as a small ship. Yep. Some of them were, were very long. About 390 feet is the longest on the Salisbury Plain. Okay. Inside of which you sometimes had megalithic chambers like at West Kennet Long Barrow. So imagine that there's sort of small uh, rooms, as it were, like caves on, on the inside. Sometimes they were megalithic, as in West Kennet Long Barrow. So, the, so these some, long structures are also mounded up. The earth was piled up. Was, was it brought yeah. in from someplace else? No, uh, they, each, each side of the mound, you have flanking ditches that oh. were quite deep. 
where they used to get the material from. Ah. So uh, either side, you'd had a very, very deep ditch. And because we're in chalk downlands beneath the, the small amount of soil we have here, it's brilliant white chalk. These monuments would have been brilliant chalk white. Oh, my. So they would have looked quite, uh, quite stunning, a bit like how the pyramid, the Great Pyramid of Giza was finished off in limestone to make it brilliant white. The same was going on here with chalk, and it was smoothed off so it would look very smooth, and it and would have lasted brilliant white for about sort of 20, 30 years. So if they're a couple of hundred feet long, maybe almost 400 for the longest, how wide were they and how high? Some of them were about 11 feet high, and they were quite broad. So some of them could have been about 20, 30 feet across, and some of them could have been a lot smaller than that, about sort of 15 feet across. So, so they varied in, in size and width, but they were substantial monuments that would have been visually seen for miles around because they were placed a lot of the time on elevated ground. Oh. Okay. So you have these brilliant white artificial hills. Yes. Uh, and long, very long mounds. Hmm. And inside they were honeycombed, you said. Inside you'd have had various chambers. Some of them would have been megalithic. In, in stone environs like around Avebury Henge which contains the world's largest stone circle and sometimes on the Salisbury Plain quite close to Stonehenge they would have had timber chambers timber rooms and they could have been brightly painted with like ochre reds and yellows as well the timbers the timbers out the front so they, they would have looked very very stunning uh, uh, to look at. And today we just see them all grassed over because they were what's called decommissioned uh, in 2500 BC. They were infilled and um, finished off so you, could, so you couldn't enter them again. So they were all kind of, it's called decommissioned. Do we know why? So we, we, well, my, my theory is uh, because a new culture came in and changed the, the way in which people lived and created monuments. And they were what I call the beaker culture. Well, they're called the beaker culture and they had uh, very round skulls. These, were, these long uh, mounds were created by the elongated skulls people going back about five and a half thousand years ago their their monuments and then they got sealed off around 2500 bc is a is an archaeological fact and one that archaeologists have never addressed they just say really? they're not sure yep they they just say they're not sure why they were decommissioned and that's why i looked into that because anything that's a, a bit of a, a mystery like yourself richard you look into well, it well particularly this one is huge it's like it's not a trivial little data point you know you've got a huge transition obviously somebody did something radically different and they killed off their predecessors they literally buried the predecessor monuments Yes. Yes. I mean, there, there's something big went down in, in, in prehistory. And, and with these uh, monuments, just before we come up uh, to, to the break, uh, the ancients would put the long-skulled people in there in what's called burial deposits in these chambers. 
so the so the first part of using these long mounds is probably for something spiritual or something quite sacred and then eventually they got used as long barrows to put in the burial deposits normally the skull and the femur bones and sometimes a whole body would go into these uh, monuments in their second phase before they got closed down so that's that's how we know there was long skull people in there because there's a lot of rec records about that mm. but one particular barrow was uh, didn't contain something uh, as simple as the long skull people and we're, we're talk about that after the break and it does Super. sound something perfect out of this world perfect that's what I was hoping for. <laughs> my guest this morning, my first guest, is Marie Wheatley, who was a very out-of-the-box archaeologist, a dowser, has worked with the energies, the hyperdimensional torsion field that surrounds these monuments, that's amplified by them. And now we have burial, burial chambers from two separate cultures, a real demarcation in ancient history and the later culture, the round-headed guys, they literally sealed off and buried and tried to forget the monuments and burial sites of their predecessors, the elongated skull guys. Were they both the same guys, or did the long-headed ones... Well, let's just kind of wait a moment. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and I guarantee you Ultimately, this will connect to the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. We shall return. So suddenly they discovered this thing called deuterium. They've actually shown studies that depleting the water by 30% actually makes mice thrive and grow faster and increasing the deuterium in water by 30% kills them. So in every liter of water, there's approximately six drops of deuterium. Well, if we were to put six drops of cyanide in our water, we probably wouldn't make it. A poison is a poison. Now, this is an isotope, so this is a radioactive, but it just stays. But I believe deuterium serves many, many, many purposes. The history, really, what we should know is the globalists have an agenda. 
and their agenda is to keep us as dumbed down as possible and so we don't recognize what they do and we comply. Part of the way of doing that is keeping it sick. Most water is about 155. But anything about 120 actually can affect us from literally a psychosis level and it's affecting our pineal gland and our pituitary gland. And of course our right brain. So what happens is excess deuterium makes it sick. Even on the National Institute Health website, they talk about deuterium helping propagate leukemia. And that's them admitting, because they always have to disclose their BS. That's them admitting it, so you can imagine the other things that it does to our body. It, we don't resonate, we don't sleep very well. I think it is the single biggest tool that the globalist, the cabal, is the biggest tool they have that puts us in a state that we don't recognize anything and we don't resonate and vibrate at the highest level possible. Hello, Lewis Herms here. Wow, what a fantastic time on the other side of the news with the eclectic cast. What incredible information, and I was so happy to be here. Sunday night, November 28th, from the Land of Enchantment, the other side of midnight. My guest this morning is Maria Wheatley, who is an archaeologist, a dowser, and who has discovered something so astonishing that has been ignored by mainstream archaeology. Gosh, where have we heard that before? Anyway, uh, Maria, please continue, because you're on the precipice, I think, of blowing our minds. Yes, well, we were discussing before the break uh, the mounds surrounding Salisbury Plain and that they had uh, internal chambers and that they were investigated by early archaeologists or antiquarians, as they're they're called. Mm -hmm. And most of the reports were putting back that they contained, you know, elongated skulls type of people and they were describing the type of artifacts that were left behind, which uh, there was few grave goods. Uh, in in these uh, type of chambers. But one quite close to Stonehenge was different to any other report that I read. And it described, um, like I say, to the normal long-skulled burials where you'd place the skull in there or a whole body 
and the femur bones and sometimes the spine. That was the burial deposit. And in long barrows, you could have up to 36 or 37, 40 people placed in there. So mm. they were like a communal way of burying uh, people. So they weren't for the individual. They were for large amounts of, of people, generally speaking, uh, especially in the south of England. Okay, let me, the, let me stop Wessex. you there. When you say elongated skulls, are we talking like, a head wrapping from infant into adulthood, which the uh, South Americans did a lot. Uh, the, they were quite naturally long skulled, although, and sometimes they were uh, exaggerated through cranial deformation. But uh, uh, but they were generally speaking a natural. Uh, a natural shaped skull is what is believed at this moment in time. But there's been hardly any research done apart from my own research. Oh. Because again, the. the so it's kind of like a taboo subject. They don't want to yes. touch it. They don't want to, because they may suspect there's an answer they don't want. Quite, quite, quite possibly. I mean, they, they are just not being looked at. They're mentioned now. I mean, since my discovery, like you mentioned in, in my introduction, I discovered that in 2015, and a few professors now are briefly ah. mentioning them in their books, but they don't go into their culture. They don't go into their identity. Uh, it's just like, you know, skimmed, as it were. So would, would, would these people, if they were not skulls, if they were you know, flesh and blood and hair and, you know, sitting on the subway or in a taxi, would you would you notice them as different from us, from ordinary humans? Yes, you would. I mean, the, the femur bones were measured. Wow. That's one thing we've got. Now, once you have a femur bone, you can estimate the height of a person. Anthropologists right. do that. The police would do that if they found a, a femur bone. Right. And the femur bones suggest that these people were very short in stature. So the, the women were about 4 feet 11. Oh my God. And the men and the men were about five feet tops. A very tall uh, elongated skull people would be about five foot seven. But on average, uh, in, in a barrow in Dorset, for, for example, the men were four feet ten. Good grief. <laughs> ah, okay. I know. I mean, we, we, we think of that people being like ourselves, but they were quite robust. Uh, in, in their build as well because the bones were quite dense and quite heavy and I was fortunate last week to go to a museum and I was talking to one of the creators there and uh, I've now filmed and photographed a lot of femur bones and measured them myself mm. so I've had access to, to this so I'm building up a really big uh, profile of these people so they, they, they would have looked very different uh, to you and I in build uh, and in look as well, especially with, with quite long skulls and quite narrow faces as well. So we have a, tend to have a round uh, face, as it were. The, uh, the elongated skulled people had narrow faces and, and strong features as well. Like, Would they uh, have kind of resembled uh, Akhenaten? Yes. I mean, again, you know, Nefertiti was uh, not a tall person. They were quite short uh, in, in height. And yes, they would have resembled that quite. Uh, there would have been a mirror uh, image at times of oh one my, another. My. And, and these people lived in the British Isles up until they didn't 
which was roughly what, 5,000 years ago? Yes, uh, yes, uh, the, the, that, that's right, that's correct. And, and they had a distinct culture by building these long mounds, which, like I say, in the first phase was probably as an initiation or something very spiritual, and then they were used as burial chambers, then they were sealed off. That's their kind of phases uh, in, in use. Hmm. Okay, so continue with the antiquarian, because obviously you you found a library that had something really interesting in it. Yes, I mean this is the thing. You've, if you read the the old uh, reports, then you you every now and again you get a, a nugget and a bit of a gem. And so I was reading through the the reports, and uh, in one listing all of the, the Barrow contents, a bit like a catalogue, if you see what I mean. It was listing everything that was found. It was describing in one Barrow, like I said, it, uh, by Stonehenge, that it, they didn't have the normal deposits in. There were five, uh, three to five long-skulled people placed in a circle so that their, their uh, arms were outstretched, creating like a little enclosure inside of which was uh, a very strange description of um, a person or uh, uh, someone from out of this. Floor, so, wait, wait. So, 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 the, so the skeletons had been laid down on their backs, right? Now in a sitting position. In a sitting position, but they were sitting in a circle. Yes. And how many were there? You said 13, 14? Uh, th- th- three, no, three, there were three to, to five, it, it was saying. The, another report varied. One said three and another said five. So it's, it's three or five. I would imagine it would be five to create more of a kind of uh, a, a filled way in of circle, yeah. 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 And, and, they I, had their, and they had their own long barrel all to themselves. Yes. Wow. So they must have yes, been special, special people, rulers, exactly. priests, nobles, yes. oligarchs, <laughs> the upper 1% <laughs> of long skull people, culture, whatever you want to call them. But they were the, the creme de la creme. They were the creme de la creme. And they were probably the, the, the rulers, the high queens, high kings, uh, high priestesses, high priests. Hmm. So you are looking at a kind of elitist right uh, next culture. To, right next to Stonehenge. Isn't, right by, uh, isn't that Stonehenge. special? Uh, oh, indeed. I mean, that would have been, you know, your, your prime uh, location. Uh, you would have been linked to, to that monument. So we've got these five long-skulled people in a circle, inside of which was one person that that was the focus of this burial uh so that's unprecedented you don't have people in the sitting position you don't have people in circles you just have the skull and the long bones placed into uh, the mounds and the description of the uh central person was yes they had uh, a long skull and uh but it was very very different it was described as the eyes were on top of the head the eyes were very high placed up almost to the forehead yes that's the 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 description given which is a bit like lloyd pye's star child where yeah i was just thinking that 
yeah, they're, they're much further up. So that was the kind of uh, first report, and it was said that the skull seemed lighter than all of the rest. So I, had, I had a guest on uh, a few days ago. In fact, I had him on again last night. His name is Michael Hall, and he's been in contact with you know folks out there, and he has this wonderful phrase that I'm going to keep using because it's so elegant. He says he's in contact with folks who are not from here. And it sounds to me like this special guy, was it a guy? Gender wasn't discussed. Ah, in this ancient, what, 17th century report you said? Uh, yes, it was about the uh, 19, uh, 1800, sorry. Oh, so, so, okay, so it's 19th century, okay. Yes. Okay, so it sounds to me like maybe this guy was not from here. Yes, I mean the just physiologically. So it was, I mean it is it is strange. The, the, so the bones uh, seemed uh, different. The eye placement uh, was was very different. The the weight of the bones were different, and uh, they when they were describing the actual uh, skeleton, uh, they said it had a tail, quite a lot. A, a, a tail as well, a tail. Well, oh, my, 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 this gets curiouser and curiouser, Alice. Yes, I mean, it, it really does. So now we've got uh, a kind of being that is being described. It's So uh, was this guy, I'm sorry to interrupt different. again, but was this guy in the no, center of the circle and the other folks were grouped yes. around him? So, yes. So like he was some, some kind of really high, you know, king, you know, pope someone of majesty that the others were in attendance to, but he was not like them. Exactly. Wow. Uh, exactly. So this person was being revered. I mean, it was encircled. So mm. that's saying mm. that that is, you know, very uh, important. And the the antiquarians were describing this very unusual tale. So they were really stunned by this uh, find. And I got in touch with Dr. Ted Robinson. He worked with uh, Lloyd Pye on the Star Child Project. By the way, you mentioned that. Why don't you refresh people who probably, you know, Lloyd is no longer with us, unfortunately. No. Describe the Star Child, what he found, and the lengths he went to get it analyzed in terms of DNA. Oh, yes. I mean, he, he had an unprecedented find. Uh, from uh, South America. Uh, it was I, a thought, very I thought he found uh, it in Mexico skull. somewhere. Uh, Mexico, yes, that's, that's right. You know, Mexico. Uh, that's that's uh, the correct. And it was a very, un- again, it was an unusual looking uh, skull. It had uh, features about it. Again, like its weight and just, you know, things like that, but made it un- unprecedented. But it was and a small, it was, it, was, it was like a child or an infant, right? As I remember. Yeah. Yeah. And again, this is reflecting what's going on in the uh, Stonehenge environs. This person was uh, small. I mean, we already know the elongated skull people were, were small in stature through the femur bones. And this part, this being or this uh, person was also very, very small in, in stature as well, with the, the, with the same kind of density of bone as the description is given. Mm. And what Lloyd Pye went out of his way 
was to try and get some DNA evidence, which is always uh, required by the scientific community, and thought it was a hybrid being between uh, a human and uh, an extraterrestrial was what he surmised uh, as part of his investigation into this uh, unusual being. Hmm. Which, of course, unless it was artificially created in the lab by the fusing of the two you know, genomes, there had to be fertility compatibility to get a hybrid, which means that the, the being that was mated had to have been somehow related closely enough to humans to be able to produce offspring. Even if they yes. even if they look different, back to my ETs are really family model, most of them. Yes, and that's that's a very interesting point, and it would have been you know a necessity and a requirement, and I think this is what was going on at uh, Stone Stonehenge. Hmm. That we we have you know these elongated skulled people associated with uh, this uh, other other creature or other other being. I mean, I, I looked into what could cause a tail, and I got in touch <laughs> with Dr. Ted Robinson, who worked with Lloyd Pye and was was very very helpful because certain conditions like spina bifida, for example. Uh, for a human being to have that can cause a tail. But Ted Robertson looked at the, the report and said that he found that would be highly unlikely that that was uh, the case. And he went into medical detail uh, regarding that. So uh, if indeed Ted Robertson is correct, we can rule out spina bifida. Although there were cases of spina bifida in the Avery environs at West Kent. Long Barrow, but none of the people that had spina bifida at the West Kennet Long Barrow had tails. So we can say, yes, that was prevalent sometimes in the ancient culture, but it didn't produce anything like this description uh, close to Stonehenge. Okay, if this ancient document, ancient being 19th century, was thorough and scientific, did it describe other things found with these five or six beings, including, you know, tools, you know, garments, uh, keepsakes, artifacts, anything that would give us clues as to who these folks were and what they were doing? No artifacts were reported or found uh, in that barrow uh, in the kind of Neolithic time of the long-skulled people. They very rarely left any grave goods or any artifacts hmm. in their barrows. Occasionally, you'd get a shard of pottery or some uh, tokens uh, like a pot. Black pots were sometimes uh, found within the long barrows, but not like in the Bronze Age where you had a lot of finds and artifacts placed in with them. So it was, it was a very different way of, of burial. So they must and have really felt that you can't take it with you. Well, maybe that, that could be uh, indeed the case. But what we do know is that there were very, very few artifacts found in the, in the long barrows reported uh, by any archaeological excavation. Darn. 
Because they could give it, us it, all it, kinds it of clues. You know, it would... Yes, uh, yes, they could. The only clues that they left behind is the longbows are associated with some of the massive ancient sites like Stonehenge. The other thing that uh, is prevalent about the longbows is they're always on very powerful uh, earth energies, uh, such as earth currents uh, and ley lines especially. They, they seem to be placed on, on those. So one thing that I noticed about this ancient culture of the elongated skulled people is they must have been the ones that laid down the lay system initially because it was added to after that. By that I mean if you imagine that these long mounds and the monuments that they created were all put onto these straight lines and, and, and grid systems if, if you will the later cultures that built other monuments and even the Christians afterwards and uh, other cultures placed their monuments on those lines so mm. they they have a historical line from like the neolithic the bronze age christian churches uh templar sites etc etc are on these lines so it must have been that ancient culture that laid down the lay system to begin with so you're dead <clears throat> and a lot of your community is dead over time and your culture has built a long barrow which is aligned lengthwise along a ley line, which is an energy line in the earth that can be detected by sensitive humans and now with technology. And they put all these people in this kind of short memorialization of the ley line. For what purpose? Do we have any clues as to what they thought they were facilitating one thing that we do know about about the lays uh, is that uh, when when you look at look at them, the energy travels quite fast along a straight line. I mean that's always been perceived uh, in in the ancient world, even going back to the ancient Chinese Feng Shui masters. Energy travels very fast along a straight line. It's the line of least resistance. But why would you care if you are dead? Way. If if your shell, if your body, if your vehicle your vessel is sitting in a circle on a ley line, why should you give a damn because you're not there anymore? Well, because in the first phase of the monument's use, it was probably not used as a burial chamber. Oh. I think the first phase of the, of the long barrel monuments were used differently oh. to the end phase of a burial and then they were sealed off. Uh, it's, it's like a stone circle will have phase one, phase two, phase three, and phase four to it. They're, they have different phases and different time spans around them. They're not just one thing. Okay. So I think initially the people that built them would have used them. I mean, tests have been done by, by authors and researchers looking into the acoustic properties of, of long mounds as well. They have Oh, really? Properties. I was just thinking of yeah. their connection connection in terms of what I figured out about Gobekli Tepe. I think those chambers with those tuning forks were incredibly resonant chambers designed to amplify the physics with sound. So if you have live beings gathering in these burrow, barrows in England, it means they were kind of like quasi churches or uh, halls or places where you could develop a resonance 
with a higher dimensional physics and that would impinge and change and enhance your living consciousness, maybe. Yes, I mean that's that's phase one. I mean the the evidence is is there, ah. and one intriguing example of acoustic properties of long barrows. If we go to Scotland, and we go to two barrows called Campster Long and Campster Round, which are about a hundred meters uh, apart from one another. So if we imagine you've got two monuments and one is about 100 meters from the other. If you played any sound in the, in the long barrow at Campster, you know, like drumming or chanting or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, and you're 100 meters away in the other barrow, That's like it would sound feet. like the sound. Yeah, so yeah, about sort of 300 uh, feet away, that's right. The sound would come out of the floor of the other barrow. Oh, my gosh. So they could and they could develop a, a, a resonance together. between them, like like a couplet. Yes. Yes, and, and that was discovered by um, Dr. Keaton from Reading University. They they did uh, quite a few tests into that, and Aaron Watson from uh, Reading University as well. So it's it's very widely documented that these these monuments were in in resonance to them, and we get that on the Salisbury Plain at Stonehenge. You get some monuments within three or four hundred feet of the other. You get that at the West Kennet Long Barrow in Avebury. The West Kennet Long Barrow has its partner called the East Kennet Long barrow which is in visual distance and probably a little bit further away than 300 feet but they do tend to come in pairs there you won't get one monument by itself it'll be part of a, a wider environment ah they were supposed to be resonant couples god it would be great to measure the, I, the, the 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 with the acatron the, the the physics you know the torsion field changes if you resonate one and you put the instruments in the other one, I'll bet it would go nuts. I think it would go very, very off the scale Wow! with, uh, with, with these uh, monuments. So when we think of uh, the, the Longmans, we need to kind of think of all these different usages, all of these different ways in which the ancient people could have uh, made their consciousness expand, have more spiritual awareness, uh, and be communicating maybe with the earth, maybe with the stars on very different levels. To or, sound, sound or Maria, and we're, coming, we're, 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 act, we're actually coming up to the top of the uh, hour here, or maybe they were communicating with folks who were no longer here. My guest this morning is Maria Wheatley, archaeologist, pioneer, dowser. You know, what do dowsers do? They douse the physics. They douse the torsion field. Imagine now that the field, like everything else in life and in experience and in geology and astrophysics and meteorology, it's all constantly changing. What if there are periods, epochs, over many, many decades or even centuries or thousands of years where the physics goes up and down and sometimes you don't need an amplifier to get in touch with the beyond and at other times you do so what do you do you build a resonant 
amplifying chamber made of limestone, a resonant hyperdimensional material. That's why the pyramids are made of limestone. And you resonate it so when you put yourself inside, you expand your field with it and your connection to someone or someplace else. Wow. You're on the other side of midnight. We will get to the National Cathedral. We shall return. side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Sunday night. Prelude to Monday morning, November 28th, here in the Land of Enchantment. My guest this morning is Maria Wheatley. And we're talking about the ancient hyperdimensional technologies built out of solid-state limestone, which started out as resonant chambers to enhance in the model, living consciousness. Now, was this just for the rulers? Or was it for everyone? Were they open to the general population? Did you take your turn? Did you get a, did you get a number? Did you stand in line? Was it seasonal? Because we know the physics changes seasonally even, even now. And then at some point, These structures went from living chambers of consciousness raising to something dead and buried in the past. And that is really interesting. Why did that happen? Was it because the physics changed? Maria, what do you think? 
Yes, I mean, that's an interesting uh, fact that, you know, you, you, you've discussed. And some of the monuments were in uh, limestone and some of them were in chalk as well. I mean, we've got a lot of chalk. Well, it's still uh, calcium carbonate. It still has the same crystalline structure. It still resonates okay. with the torsion field. And we know that because of laboratory yes. experiments. Anyway, please continue. Yes, that's that's interesting. Yes, so uh, so the, these monuments were, like I say, you know, uh, they could be resonant uh, chambers, and they also created some uh, very unusual effects. Uh, I suggest with some of their large mounds. So we've discussed the low lying, although they're about 11 feet high, long mounds. And I know that you visited Silbury Hill in the past, Richard. Oh, yeah. And you, you, did you do some torsion measurements at the hill? At yes. Silbury hill? Yes. There are even photographs. I got amazing readings. And on one of my visits, I actually went up top and I just lay down kind of like spread eagle the way you would make snow angels. And I put out my arms and I just lay there looking straight up with the entire mass of the mound underneath me to see if I could uh, feel anything. And I guess I'm one of those people that don't feel I have to look at instruments because I didn't feel a damn thing. But anyway, the instruments recorded amazing stuff. Yes, yeah, so for your uh, listeners, just to describe Silbury Hill. Well, we got a picture. Silbury Hill is... Actually, we've got a picture. I think it's snow-covered. In your section, it is uh, number nine. Yes, Uh, slide uh, slide number nine, that's correct. So it's it's a large mound. And again, because we're in the chalk downland, it was white, brilliant chalk white. But beneath that chalk mound, and it's about 130 feet high, is a seven-step chalk pyramid is beneath that round smooth veneer so to speak so that's and english heritage have finally put on their notice board that description i've had it in my books for about no wait wait. you you mean you mean from corings underneath that mound that cone-shaped snow covered so it looks like the original limestone uh fragments that were brought in and dumped and pile up to create this mound Underneath that mound, there is an actual planar pyramid, kind of like the picture above, number eight. Yes, it's what, what's beneath that uh, smooth, large mound are chalk blocks. I mean, massive chalk blocks. I mean, you're talking about sort of 20 or so feet long that created sort of like a seven-step pyramid. Oh, my God. So uh, they built a step pyramid and then they covered it with, with uh, rubble, you know, limestone rubble to create a mound. Oh, yes. Yes. Now, do we know that, that, that the same? Do, do we know that the know. same? Do we know that the same culture that built the step pyramid with huge blocks? God, I'd love to see one of those. That it was the same culture that then buried it in rubble to create the the, the sloping mound without any geometry at all. That's a really good question that Thank you've you. raised, and <laughs> and it, it could have been indeed the case. Again, we're looking at well. Two remember, remember, Golbekli Tepe was built, and then somebody deliberately buried it, yes. like to preserve exactly. it. Exactly. 
So did someone exactly. bury under Silbury Hill the real edifice, the real hyperdimensional amplifier to preserve it for <clears throat> now? Well, this this is the case. It, it, something happened where it was one type of monument and then it was transformed into another type of monument. So, But it gets even more fascinating because if we've got this chalk block creating this seven-step uh, pyramid, on the inside of that chalk block were different layers of material. Material. Uh, it was reported uh, in, in one uh, archaeological report of having an organic layer and an inorganic layer, an organic and inorganic layer in, oh as, as it goes up, which uh, wow. is a bit like the Wilhelm Reich, you know, yes, organic, exactly. organic layer. Well, because it was a hyperdimension, it was like an organ, mega, mega organ accumulator, because organ is the, is the field, it's the torsion field. We're all talking about the same yes. stuff, okay? So, again, when you have these radical changes, like the barrows, like long barrows back to, to round barrows, you have cultural change. You have people changes. Did the new guys that built the barrows, the round ones, did they move in and cover up to silence, to kill, to stifle the energy in the crib, the pyramidal, huge orgone pyramid under basically a mound of rubble? Well, I think that that could have well occurred. Um, you know, it's it's very difficult to get different uh, dates through these monuments because it's now a UNESCO World Heritage Site and the last archaeological excavation, I think, was around the year maybe 2000, 2005, hmm. around, around that time. And it's not going to be uh, looked at uh, and investigated anymore. More's uh, the, the, the pity. Well, well that's kind of dumb. Who made, who made that decision? How can you UNESCO. stop science? Unless you have even the top Stonehenge archaeologists, such as Professor Mike Parker Pearson from uh, University College London, UCL, they have to have a really good uh, uh, paper to say, I want to dig at Stonehenge, because otherwise they're just not allowed, actually. And, uh, and Avebury has hardly had any excavations done since the 1930s. Mm. So right. you so you like, got you got a hill you got a hill called Silbury Hill, you now know yes. and do they know because of corings or because of seismic uh, surveys or ground Corrin. penetrating radar? Uh, well, they they've used ground penetrating radar and they have used uh, coring and also. Uh, in the 1960s, you had Professor Richard Atkinson, and he created a, a tunnel, which was an, an existing tunnel that had been done in the 1800s to enter the centre of Silbury Hill. Right. So, and it was filmed in the in the 60s. Was it? What, what, what was this from the top down, or was it from the side in? From the side in, ah. and it was an existing tunnel that had been created, but not kind of fully extended. Atkinson went right into the core <laughs> of Sil of Silbury Hill, and what he found in one of his reports that he wrote, he found he said he found living moss, but this hadn't seen the light of day for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Wait, wait, run that so, by me again. He found living what? Moss. 
it's a kind of uh, you get it in dark, damp climate. Oh, you're saying like, moss, like M O S S. I thought you were saying moss, M O T H S. And I thought, Sorry, oh, that's, that's weird. That's my English accent. That's my English accent. I do apologize. It's all. Uh, it, it's basically Skype. Okay, so it was moss growing in moss. the dark in the center of Silbury Hill. Yes. Now, in order and, for and him he, to extend the tunnel, he had to go through the blocks and the layering horizontally of the pyramid, right? The step pyramid? Yes. Did he report that? Oh, guys, I kind of found a building in here. He he does report the different types of, of layering system, and he, he does say what it was uh, constructed of, but it, it's not a detailed oh, darn. Uh, report as such. Well, that's uh, and, dumb science. Well, Professor Richard Atkinson, when he excavated Stonehenge, uh, he took some very uh, interesting artifacts from uh, the Bush Barrow. It's a very famous uh, burial mound, and it wasn't found and rediscovered in 2005, and he did that in the 60s. He mm-hmm. would just take artifacts. Hmm. So, you know, that is not scientific of what you'd expect from from a professor. So he was acting more like an antiquarian or some of the guys that went and pilloried or pillaged rather uh, Egypt and brought all the stuff to the British Museum. I wonder if this Uh, stuff that Atkinson found is hanging out in the basement of the British Museum. I think there's a lot that has has been taken and a lot that has gone missing because uh, it, it's every now and again something crops up. So, like I said, the last time was 2005 from the 1960s. So, so and it, it sorry was, to interrupt. We don't have a lot of time. It feels like it, but we don't. Uh, this idea that the the Silbury Hill is not the smooth, you know, very difficult to climb because it's slippery grass on the on the surface now. And of course, they have all these signs saying "Do not climb," and I had to climb it to get the get the reading. So, you know, I just climbed it and did the readings. And there's photographs of me doing this. So, if the Brits want to come and arrest me, feel free. Anyway, <laughs> under this mound, there is this pyramid, seven-step pyramid made of huge blocks. I presume they're limestone, right? Chalk. Chalk. Well, chalk and limestone are the same thing, basically. One is different consistency. Same. Same chemical material, they're calcium carbonate. Do we know, do you know, where they quarried these blocks to build a 130-foot-high step pyramid in the middle of a plane? There's a hill not far from Silbury Hill called Waden Hill, and that was one of the quarries. And also it, had, it was surrounded by a very, very deep moat which would have been filled with water all year round. Today, it only fills up in the winter when the springs fill the moat up, but originally it would have been surrounded by water. So the, so the, moat, so the moat, which is basically a ditch, would have been the source material to build the hill that covers the, the pyramid, right? Some of it, and the other quarry was not that far away on what's called Waden Hill, and you can still see a huge kind of area that doesn't grow like the rest of the hill, and that's because it was all disturbed ground beneath it. Hmm. So that was believed to be one of the one of the quarries there. Okay, I've got a two-part question. Given that the physics of 
the torsion field, these, ampl- these solid-state amplifiers, totally changes radioactive decay rates, okay? And the okay. radioactive decay is supposed to be this immutable clock that you can use to date ancient structures, like the half-life of carbon-14 is 5,800 years and change, almost 6,000. But not if it's buried in these structures, it will change significantly over time. So if you got some of the organics from the layers of the pyramid and you try to date using the radiocarbon method, the, the pyramidal age when it was built, it'd be totally off. You're totally wrong. And so I wonder if they know this because in your research, have you found, A, when they figured out there was a step pyramid buried under the hill, and B, when they estimate the pyramid was buried to conceal it? No, there has been no dating uh, of that. Ding, 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 ding. You know why? Because they got results they couldn't believe. They can't believe it. It's, it's, well, like, it's, like, it's, it's, it's so enigmatic and anomalous. Instead of publishing, they simply buried it because they, they can't explain it because their physics does not explain this. In their universal view, radioactive decay rates are constant cosmological clocks. Nothing changes them. The weather, the rotation of the earth, the sun dying, nothing will change them. When, of course, in the real physics, which has been hidden, they're changeable all over the map. And that's what they're concealing by publishing. I mean, you'd think they'd publish a date, right? So the date that uh, the archaeological expert called Jim Leary says about Silbury Hill is 2480 BC. That's his timeline. But he took that from a sample. Remember I said that they're in about sort of 2000 or 2005, they re-excavated and went back into the mound. Mm-hmm. Uh, they took you some mean samples. You in, in, mean into Atkins Tunnel? into Atkinson's Tunnel, oh, that's right. Okay. And a friend of mine, a late author called John Cowie, who was a Silbury Hill alternative uh, expert, he went in with them and took his own sample mm. for carbon dating. So you've got the archaeological date of 2480 BC by Jim Leary, and John Cowie's um, uh, date was 12,000 BC. Oh, now that's interesting. Because I'd prefer. I I think Cowing's data is much more accurate than uh, uh, the the standard date. And again, they're probably both an error because of the physics. Could, uh, could could well be, but th- that was one independent uh, dating system. Are you familiar with? And I think with, what, Go ahead. No, no, no. Go, you go ahead, Richard. Sorry. Are you familiar with? I'm trying to remember the guy's name. He he was he worked for ARE. He's now become a very prominent Egyptologist. He was put through school and university by the um, uh, ARE research organization, which was the Casey organization. And he's kind of like the Carl Sagan of Egyptology, and I'm blanking on his name. Anyway, many, many, many years ago, he did sampling of the straw in the mortar of the Great Pyramid in a spiral going from the ground 
all the way to the top, and he sent it to several different labs, and the dates came back that the top of the pyramid was older than the bottom, which, of course, is impossible, much older, because how do you build a pyramid apex hanging in midair without the stuff underneath it, right? But the explanation, of course, is that the pyramids are active torsion field machines, and so they completely skew the radiocarbon dating that, of course, uh, Mark Lehner, that's his name, Mark Lehner, that Lehner was assuming was the real physics. Well, the same thing here. Depending upon where you got your sample, you'd get a more accurate version of the radiocarbon dating of Silbury Hill. And if your friend got it from close to outside and the other guys got got it from, I have a frog in my throat. If the other guys got it from near the center, near the center would be the most radically changed. The physics would, would play havoc with the, you know, decay rate. And the sample that your friend got probably near the exterior would be more accurate in terms of real age dating. But unless you knew there was a physics problem, you'd be left with a conundrum and everybody would just say, well, we can't deal with that. We'll just bury it, literally. That's, that's, that, that's very interesting about, you know, where that you take uh, samples from, which could, you know, like you say, change the, the whole yeah, well, day. Well, we got line. Mark Lehner's documented published results, which for some reason he published. I don't know how he got it published, but it's right there in the literature. The top of the pyramid is much older than the bottom, which makes no sense at all. No, it's very, very, very intriguing. Well, because of obviously the physics of the pyramid and what was basically uh, encapsulated inside. And that's a whole other program. Anyway, this is remarkable. Now, where if, if one wanted to find a description, a mainstream description of this buried seven-step pyramid, where would you look? Because I've seen nothing on this. Nothing. Well, there there are a few diagrams uh, online that if you do put in uh, Silbury Hill, you'll you'll come up with uh, the the image. It's a bit like um, uh, it's done on one side, and uh, in in my book, I'm trying to think which one it's in. I think it's Discovering Wiltshire. I've got a really good uh, diagram of it uh, in, in there. And mm. like I say, the the latest uh, board has this in front for everybody to see. Finally. Wow. With, uh, if we look as well, even if we do use an orthodox date of 2480 BC, which I actually think it is a lot older, but yep. even if, if you stay on the orthodox timeline, you're in uh, what's called the Chalcolithic period, the Copper Age. Mm-hmm. And so you've got the, the Neolithic time of the, the Long Skull people, then you've got the Chalcolithic, and then you've got the Bronze Age, and you've got the Iron Age, and etc. That's the kind of prehistoric timeline that is used in the archaeological models. So in the Chalcolithic period here, and what, what I think was going on, very similar to, to the Great Pyramid, which is writers like John Michel have often said that on right on the apex of the pyramid, you could have had a, a piece of conducting material, uh, his model is gold, that, well, that was on the final piece at the top. Yeah, the so-called golden a, capstone. 
Yes, exactly. So you've, you've got that kind of conductive material. And I think that was very similar to what may have occurred with Silbury Hill. You had a, a conducting material, be that gold or be that copper, that was placed on top of that monument as well. And with uh, an engineering friend uh, of mine who was measuring the, we didn't do torsion fields like, uh, like you, uh, Richard, but what we did, we looked into the electrostatic fields of Silbury Hill and we took a control at the bottom, which was the normal reading, which was around 200 volts, which you always get anyway, about six feet high, uh, 1.82 meters. Mm -hmm. you'll, you'll always get that reading. It's quite common. And when we took the uh, equipment, uh, which was an electrostatic field meter, uh, to the top of it, uh, it was ranged at uh, um, 20,000 mm -hmm. volts. It was completely, completely different. And what, what uh, the, the engineer and I surmised and uh, hypothesized is that with the, the electrostatic field there building up with all of these different uh, layers of organic and inorganic acting like a, a high voltage capacitor, uh, if you if you will, it would release the electrostatic uh, field uh, through through the copper or the gold on top, and it would have lit up a kind of blue discharge of light. Mm. And that has actually been captured by a photographer in the area where he got some blue haze right at the top of uh, Silbury Hill at the full moon. Oh, really? Uh, we, yes. Is there a it, video it, of this? Captured. Uh, he he won't allow me to use that image. What? He allowed me to use it in one lecture, uh, but won't let me use it in the future, unfortunately. Why not? What did you do to uh, it? I don't. I didn't do anything. <laughs> did someone come to him and say, over, over your dead body, you're not going to let her use that picture again? Well, I, I did have permission to begin with. I did one lecture on this uh, mm. for the basis project, and then I was uh, denied access, and I had to write a formal letter saying that I would not use it. Mm. Which was well, anyway, but nonetheless, uh, it, it got captured, uh, released in this what we think was an electrostatic field. So now we've got this. Uh, so hang on, hang on. Let me interrupt again. Why can't we? Why can't we take our own? Yes, I've tried uh, on a couple of occasions to, to go there at night to capture it, and I haven't captured it yet, but I, I will continually try to do so. Well, it's got to be when the physics, you know, remember I used the analogy, you can't surf unless surf is up. The physics has to be at a peak for you to see this, for this phenomenon to become, you know, kind of blatant. Yes. Yes, uh, I agree, and uh, and think that is in, indeed uh, indeed the case. So I th I think Silbury Hill was, you know, releasing organ into the environment because of its uh, layering states, and I think it could have been used as well to create a light uh, a light effect around it, which would have been uh, quite stunning. You see, what's happened to the top of Silbury Hill, its summit? is the when the French uh, came to England and you know took over a lot of the lands here and you know after 1066 they sliced the top of Silbury Hill off to make it a lookout an advantage point so the, <laughs> oh, the, the actual 
top of Stilbury Hill is no longer in existence to say what it actually looked like or what it contained. And if it did have any debris from uh, a conducting material, well, that's all gone. So you you can't prove either way, if you see what I mean, which is a real shame, Mm. because I think it really went far more to an apex uh, point then we see it today as flat. In which case, I again am very suspicious of the official story. I think someone in the know tried to kill it. Yes. Yes, we're we're trying to get back the facts of how these ancient sites Mm -hmm. function. Yep. And, you know, the, the, the visual effects of these sites as well. And and the and the deeper energy effects would have been even wower. Anyway, hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. Uh, my guest this morning is Maria Wheatley, and we are romping through ancient Britain, ancient technologies that somehow, and the mechanism is by way of the National Cathedral and the recent amazing UFO conference held at the National Cathedral where the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency basically says, there's somebody out there, and we need to pay attention. And Congress is now talking about setting up a UFO, ancient alien ET office under the Department of Defense. This is getting really interesting. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And 
welcome back everyone to the other side of midnight for this Sunday night, last half hour on Sunday. My guest this morning, Maria Wheatley, is taking us in a tour de force journey back in time to a time obviously extraordinarily sophisticated ancient technology, which again, in my perspective, someone else has now been trying for the last several thousand years to systematically stamp out, decapitate, bury, silence, make everyone forget. In other words, it's almost like we were in prison. And now, is the dawn coming? Are we about to experience a renaissance, the likes of which in human memory we have never known? And will this be facilitated by someone from outside? Well, we'll talk about that in the next 90 minutes. Maria, please continue. Yes, yeah, so uh, what we've been discussing that, you know, that you could have these amazing light effects if the uh, mound originally had a metal cap, as you know, it's claimed with the tops of pyramids, particularly if pointed, you get a corona discharge caused by the ionization, which would create this amazing blue light. So, we, so when we look at ancient sites today, we're just seeing the vestiges of that which was. The bare bones, the bleaching the bones of time. Yes, uh, exactly so. When we know that they have uh, acoustic properties and you yourself know that they have uh, energy with, uh, with the torsion field, mm. we know that their placement was significant, being joined together, as it were, by, by lays and by earth currents. Is there a known lay that runs there. under Silvery Hill? Is there what? Sorry, Richard? Is there a known lay, lay line that runs under Silvery Hill? Yes, there's a very powerful north-south line ah. that links Silbury to Stonehenge. Oh, my, 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 But more than that, Richard, and I've investigated this uh, for, for many years, this, this lay. It's one of the most powerful in the area because it runs north-south. but Along uh, the meridian. Along the meridian. At right angles but, to the Earth's rotation, which is, in the physics, really important. Right, that's, that's, that's really interesting. Well, there was, uh, again, another antiquarian called uh, Dr. Edward Duke, who used to live near uh, uh, Stonehenge in a, in a very large house there. And what Edward Duke uh, claimed that he found or that he himself devised was that if you take Stonehenge to be at the south, and then you get other sites along that line. For example, you have a very large Iron Age ceremonial enclosure called Casterly Camp. You have a place called Marden on that line as well before it reaches Avebury. And Marden was a superhenge. Hardly anything is left of it today, but it was a massive place with sweat lodges, with stone circles, with a mound. Now, the name is very interesting, which I'll come to in a moments uh modern and what edward duke said was that the distance between all of these sites uh represented the planets above 
so you would have Saturn for Stonehenge, you would have Jupiter for Casterly Camp and Marden, Den is an old English word for settlement and farmstead. You literally have the settlement of Mars in its name, Marden. Oh, my, 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 place, my. <laughs> yeah, that place would represent Mars. Then you come to Silbury Hill, and Silbury Hill, Duke said, represented the Earth. Now, if you and Avebury represented the sun and the moon, and north of Avebury, Richard, you used to have this amazing concentric stone circle. Only one stone survived. Uh, from the 1720s stone mm. smashing phase and that was the temple of venus so he has all of the planets laid out in a planisphere as above and so below i showed this to an astronomer friend of mine called lawrence upton uh, many years ago and said okay they've gone up to saturn if we use that line can we find ah. where uranus neptune and Pluto is mm -hmm. on this planetary line. And he said it was ingenious what the ancients were doing because they were using Silbury Hill as representing Earth, as indeed Duke said. But the distance between each of the planets represented the mean distance they were apart in the heavens above, which mm. is extraordinary because... You, you think, how would the ancient people know that? Well, using that and, and using it as miles on the ground, if you see what I mean. You're, right. you're, you're using the mean distance above and you're projecting it at miles. So we used that system, which we think the ancients did, and we found on that line Uranus. Oh, you're kidding. Wow. No, it, 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 is, it, is, a, it is very wild. Which means that you can't a, see him with the naked eye. The ancients had to be using documents, archives, libraries, scrolls, some kind of handed down heritage of knowledge that these guys were also important in the physics. Yes, indeed. Indeed, that is the case. You cannot see on the ground you know, where, where these sites, sites would be in relationship to, to another. It so is, how did he find them? How did he, how did he identify them? By using the mean distance in miles uh, of what he uh, mathematically saw. So, uh, he sees a, so, so he sees a piece of ground mathematically where Uranus and Neptune should be. What's there now? What's left? That's right. So Uranus was uh, on a sited on a beautiful uh, ancient monument called Belisnap. It's a horned long barrow, Neolithic, five and a half thousand years old, orthodox dating, and it has like these kind of big crescent features at the front. It's a very, very stunning monument, and that represented Uranus. Neptune, we found at uh, Hengistbury Head. Mm. Now, Hengistbury Head is a big Neolithic and Bronze Age and Iron Age settlement with lots of monuments, and it overlooks the sea on the south coast, and that is Neptune's domain. The, the oceans and the sea. Yeah, Poseidon, was, uh, the oceans, the sea. water, seawater. Poseidon, yes. So it was quite poetic oh, that Hendrickstree Head, where Neptune should be, was on the uh, south coast in a, in a county called Dorset. So, so we investigated... Oh, that's, 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 where, that's where Graham lives. Graham Hancock lives down in Dorset. 
Right, well, he's uh, he could be very close to uh, to Neptune, mm. that Hengisburi head, for instance. So this lay is so so sophisticated that it is is representing the the planets above. Okay, um, I hate to ask, did your friend find Pluto? Pluto, we did find Pluto, but the the problem with that is was it in a very built up city area, oh. which which you you wouldn't know what was you know beneath the ground right. but interestingly many years later uh, a friend of mine from Wessex archaeology was doing an emergency what's called over here emergency dig that's if you've got a new store going up you think there's something beneath the ground something has been found by one of the building contractors the the, the construction has to stop right. and an archaeologist has to go in it's, it's emergency archaeology and quite close to to that line he's a very open-minded archaeologist that has always supported my, my work and he said i think i found your pluto oh it was my. a long a long barrow that was very, very deep in the ground, not on top of the ground, like we expect long barrows, Richard, but it was slightly below the ground. And Pluto, uh, in, um, you know, its symbolism is God of the underworld. Hades, this, yes, this yes. Was below the ground. So the symbolism seems to fit. And well, well, well there's, there's, is, there's, there's another aspect. You say that it's close to, but not on the ley line? Uh, it, no, we would have been on the lay, we, we think, uh, in this built-up area ah, okay. in the north of England. So it was uh, very, very on, on the line. And even when we look at Stonehenge as representing Saturn in this model, uh, Stonehenge, as, as you might know, has 30 or, or so stones creating the outer lintel stone circle. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, in its round of the zodiac, uh, Saturn takes about 29, 30 years to do one round. Yep, yep, the, 29. Going through that. Yep, so, and the 30th stone at uh, Stonehenge is slightly smaller than the other lintel stones as well. It's called stone number 29 hmm. for those that want uh, to look that up. So there seems to be a lot of, symbolism in relationship to this lay. Well, Saturn, Another, you know, Saturn as a planet, as NASA's measured it with the Voyager flybys and then, of course, Cassini. I mean, it's just so amazing in a hyperdimensional physics perspective. Saturn is nothing like they expected, and it doesn't behave like their models have said. And, of course, they're, they're baffled publicly anyway. Maybe they're not privately baffled, wow. but publicly, Saturn is really, really, really weird, wondrously weird, as it should be, because the rings are active. They're not passive. They're part of the hyperdimensional way that planets interact with the field. So Saturn is so bizarrely wondrous hyperdimensionally. Okay, next question. If you have the technology to measure the lay energies along the line, what happens to those energies when they encounter these monuments representing the planets. Yes, I mean, uh, we haven't uh, measured the energy of that line. Oh, darn. But what we have, but what we have, but what we have done in terms of, of dowsing, for, for example, they do seem more energized. And I think the planetary positions also affect 
that line because another. You, wait, wait, you mean when you say planetary line, position, you mean the real planets upstairs? As yes. as they're changing configuration, I, the line and the planetary representations along the line, they change. That seems to be the case, indeed, wow. especially with conjunctions and opposition. Oh, how wondrous! How perfect! Now, another astronomer friend of mine, uh, he helps other authors as well, not just myself, called Rodney Hale. He uh, has some really good software and can calculate you know, the planets at any time. And what he did, because I said, when in prehistory uh, would these, the planets have lined up, kind of sim- symbolizing what was going on on the lay below, if you see what I mean. Right, like, like, like you have them all lined up like beads on a string from, from the sun out to Pluto, that kind of thing. Yes, yes. Wow. And it was, was there a time in prehistory when that did occur? Mm-hmm. And according to Rodney Hale, it was around 2700 BC, which was the heyday, orthodox dating, of when those monuments were being constructed and being built. Hmm. Now, if they were already in existence and they're much older, let's say, yeah. you know, they're, they're older than that, then 2700 BC could have been a time where uh, there was a big surge on that line, a big energetic. There would have been, yeah. yeah. Of, so did your, friend uh, calculate, did your friend calculate previous cycles? He did uh, the one which was 2700 uh, BC. And the that one before the, that? The one before that, he didn't calculate. Oh, darn. Why not? <laughs> Why not? Because uh, we were... Okay. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, that, that indeed... Uh, Back in consonance with your friend who ducked the sample from Silbury Hill that's 12,000 years, which was about the same age as Gopek. We tapi. Yes, I we've mean, got to stop thinking of I this think... history being all compressed into, you know, the canonical six thousand years. Our real history is so much vaster and has been vigorously suppressed. Well, indeed. I mean, even with uh, recent carbon dating, which, as you know, can be inaccurate anyway from Stonehenge. Two samples were taken uh, by uh, an archaeologist and. What came up was the the orthodox date that's always being mooted, 2500 BC. Mm-hmm. What well, any uh, anything over the planet seems to match that date, but a much much older one was putting it way way back to more like sort of 10,000 BC, and that was just from two bits of carbon from grain. So we know. And hang on, hang on, hang on. These, um, where where were those samples taken? How far apart were they? They were found in the same position beneath a blue stone at uh, Stonehenge. You mean they were side by side and they were that different in dates? Yes, that's the intriguing thing. Well, that means that one had been brought in from someplace else more recently. Because they, remember the energy flows, it's not uniform. It swirls like in vortices and whatever. So you can have two materials that are separated by 20, 30, 40 feet. Think back to Laner measuring the Great Pyramid, and they can have significantly major differing radiocarbon decay uh, ages. Yes, and uh, the, 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 what the archaeologists do, they will always choose the younger day. Of course, because of course. Because it 
fits it yeah, fits yeah. their model. And incidentally, that was the archaeologist that did that, and it, and it is widely reported there was these huge discrepancies with mm-hmm. Tim Deville and the late Jeffrey uh, Wainwright. Mm-hmm. They were looking and investigating the blue, particularly the blue stones at, at Stonehenge, because Stonehenge is made of a variety of different stones, such as sarsen stones, which are the really big lozenger-shaped right. stones, and, and the trilithons, and the, the smaller stones that create an inner feature are the blue stones that came from uh, Wales. So these were like uh, two grains of what? Wheat? Yeah. Okay. And they were like side by side under a blue stone, right? Yes. And they had dates differing between 10,000 and 2,500 years. Yes, one one uh, he he said uh, possible he printed in print it was seven thousand seven hundred uh, years before the present date. Mm. BP they call it sometimes mm-hmm. in their dating mm-hmm. system rather than sort of like BC. So we do have all of these discrepancies that can put the monuments way way yes, back, which of course, matches of course, of John Cowie's. 12,000, which matches the oldest monuments in the world that are in, mm. uh, in Turkey that you've mm-hmm. mentioned. Gobekli so Tepe. Gobekli Tepe, yeah. whether you're in Turkey or whether you're in, in the British Isles. Which, seems just to be happens to be, which just happens to be exactly one half of the processional cycle, which is what drives the physics up and down, up and down, changing its uh, you know, amplitude and changing its impact on everything including human consciousness and biology. I wonder if those two samples side by side were deliberately put together by somebody thinking that in the future somebody would figure it out. I mean, really. (laughs) Could could well be. Like a little tiny museum, like a little time capsule. Hey, guys, in the distant future, you know, figure this one out. Hmm. Which would, of so, course, so throw we, every, which would throw everything we think we think about Neolithic cultures into a cocked hat. Well, well, this is this is the thing with with evidence coming out, whether it's from the archaeological model or whether it's from you know antiquarian reports, it does always point out to a multi uh, faceted use of these monuments. I mean, Silbury Hill alone is a multi faceted monument that has a lot going on it's not just one thing it can release light it's on a huge lay it represents the planet earth it was a seven-step pyramid i mean you you have an awful lot going on with these monuments i don't think they were just one thing or used as one thing at any one time so that by itself and that lay is really very powerful because it's it's uh seems to be activated especially so round about the time of the winter solstice which normally occurs on the 21st of december Mm -hmm. sometimes on the 22nd of december that seems to be a peak date where that that line is uh activated we've uh, we've looked at over the years Mm. well the physics model says it should be because it's at right angles to the rotation of the earth and uh on that day, we're in alignment between the sun, the earth, and the center of the galaxy with its four million solar mass black hole. It's all falling well, into place. Is, 
Yeah, I mean, it really does uh, energize that. And also what's interesting about the winter solstice when you come to some of the stones at Avebury that are in situ that haven't been re-erected in concrete, because uh, a lot of the Avebury stones have, the, the two massive uh, entrance stones, they're really big. They weigh up to 60 to 80 tons. They are huge. One of them has a seat area, and it's called the Devil's Chair. It has a place where you can actually sit in and it'd be like on a megalithic throne it's it's, it's huge it has uh, an area that uh, also would have originally been in alignment to if you sat in that chair you'd have seen the midwinter sunrise but today the henge bank is in the way oh. that's because the, the henge bank was extended 200 years ago if you read alex under uh, keeler's original archaeological report he found that the henge bank was set back by about 30 feet feet so if you put the henge bank back into its original position what i discovered was richard is that you'd be able to see the midwinter sunrise from that chair sitting in so the catbird seat sitting in the exactly so again it's it's, it's lined up now archaeologically what does a throne a seat represent well, uh, a throne represents a, a seat of authority, of power. Yeah, but who specifically? Who? Well, for the, the ruler at that time. A, a well, all right. A I'll, I'll, I'll give you one more clue. Egypt. <laughs> Egypt. The hieroglyph of a oh, seat the hieroglyph. of the throne represents Isis. Isis. Oh, yes. She's depicted with the throne on her yes, head sometimes. Yes, serious. Yes. And, of course, yes. last night, you know, some of the folks that are tooling around, we now know from multiple sources, are from Sirius, more family. Yeah, but, so that's, that's a very in, interesting connection. The plot is getting very, very, very lumpy. Boy, wait till, wait till George joins us in a few minutes. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, when we have a look at the, how the, uh, these monuments, even just from Stonehenge to Avebury and beyond, they're, they're not just these arbitrary placements. They are, you know, representing a planisphere. Mm -hmm. And this is the, the, the important thing because, and there's more lines that go through Silbury than just that one as well. It's, it's called a, a beacon a monument where you get numerous lines going through. So we don't just see, we have a major line like the planetary duke line, as I call it. Mm -hmm. um, and you have that going through it. But imagine it being crisscrossed by a lot of other, uh, you know, ley lines as well. Like a network. Uh, crossing it and like, like a, a network, yeah. Hmm. Like a dartboard almost. You know, it has numerous lines going through it. And beneath that as well, you will have uh, a massive, massive uh, aquifer as well. So be below that, you've got a deep aquifer that gives off a spiral energy pattern called a geospiral as well, which is uh, a dousable image in the ground it's like a surface pattern it's what dowsers would be able to interpret ah oh, that's a very very deep uh, aquifer so again the placement of silbury hill is is not arbitrary on many many different levels and same as that long barrow that uh, housed that very unusual being that too is on very unusual earth energies uh, so the ancient 
deliberately planted the uh, the barrow, placed the, the barrow rather, over spiral energy patterns. Mm-hmm. And again, a huge lathe that goes like north-south along that barrow. And it too is crossed by other lathes as well. Mm. Okay, here's, here's a really... I'm sorry, this is, this is unfair. I shouldn't do this, but I'll do it anyway. What happened to all the good stuff in the barrow around the weird guy? The skeleton? The, yeah, well, whenever you have anything interesting happening around the Stonehenge environs, it's either in a no-go area because it's a military establishment surrounding Stonehenge. Oh, how convenient. The, how wonderfully yeah, exactly. convenient. National security rears its ugly head again. And you can't, you can't go on there. It's a bit like Area 51. You just, you can't, Mm -hmm. civilians can't enter that. The perfect tool of of censorship that no one questions. Yes. Yeah, exactly so, and it's on on the periphery of what's called a, a danger zone. Quite a lot of the very interesting barrows are in the no-go zone. So, what happened to the remnants of uh, the, this this uh, this being? Well, it was it, it was reported, and then they didn't know if they were put back or if they were taken out and have gone missing. Again, when you have these interesting, really interesting reports that challenge everything we know about our past, they tend to mysteriously just disappear or never be reported about. Same with the elongated skulls. If I hadn't gone to Cambridge and Oxford University to look at these skulls, nobody would have realized that there was elongated skulls in in the British Isles because they are stored away in boxes. (laughs) They're stored away, Richard. Uh, and, and so where do I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of that great end scene from Indiana Jones. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that scene? The big warehouse? No, I don't. Remind me. Oh, the, the big oh, warehouse where they put the ark after he'd gone through all that. The... Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. And that's the same. I mean, for instance, when I was in uh, in Cambridge, you have Stonehenge skulls in boxes on one side of the warehouse, just like Indiana Jones. Great analogy, Richard. And on the other side were all the skulls from Abydos. Uh, Abydos, <laughs> rather, in, in, in Egypt. Amazing. I was looking at them and I took a photograph uh, of it as well, thinking there are hundreds of skulls. I'm not talking about one or two, Richard. I'm talking about box after box after box going up 20 feet high for as long as your eye can see. Wow. And they are not investigated because when I signed in to look for the elongated, uh, I call her the High Queen of Stonehenge, nobody had seen her <laughs> since the 1930s. I had to sign in. And I thought this is astonishing. Okay, we are at the uh, top of the hour. We're going to be joined on the other side by Georgia Lambert, and uh, my guest, uh, Maria, will remain with us. I can't wait to hear their conversation. I mean, begin to get a picture here now that there's a lot more in heaven and earth ratio than is dreamed of in your ancient archaeological philosophy, that there's been an active connection to our high-tech ancient history, our hyperdimensional using the field to enhance human occupation of the planet with maybe somebody else thrown in, relatives from from where? If they were shorter and they had denser bones, 
would it be a real reach to say maybe they came from a higher gravity planet? Remember, the 800-pound gorilla, armed with hyperdimensional physics and technology, can live almost anywhere it wants to. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Georgia Lambert is coming up when we return. And if you touch that dial now, well, I will be very disappointed. Other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. It is now officially the other side of midnight here in the high desert in northern New Mexico, the land of enchantment. My guest this morning is uh, Maria Maria Wheatley, and she'll be joined shortly by Georgia Lambert. Maria is a very out-of-the-box pioneering archaeologist with an expertise in dowsing, in detecting these energies. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, Maria, something really weird and wondrous is coming up that I wonder if you're going to be measuring, probably with your selected tool of choice, which is uh, dowsing. On, on literally Christmas Eve, on December 24th of this year, there is a square involving, that's an astrological term, a square involving Saturn and Uranus 
which is exact the night of Christmas Eve grading into Christmas morning. And the moon is moving through a 60-degree angle, which is a uh, trine, I'm sorry, a sextile, and then it goes to a right angle, another square, across Christmas Day into the day after Christmas. And something, according to our best calculations, something is going to occur in that really crucial hyper-dimensional window. So I would recommend strongly that you get to the nearest ley line or the nearest interesting monument or monuments plural and you do some measurements in that time frame because frankly from everything we put together something really amazing and wondrous could happen. Yes, I will. Okay, I believe um, we have been joined by Georgia. Are you there? I am. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Good it's, morning. It's, it's still evening on, on, on your on your coast, but it's morning here, and it's really morning in England. Um, <laughs> Maria, Georgia, Georgia, Maria. Hi, Maria. Hi, Georgia. Hi. Okay, I presume you've been able to listen for at least the last hour or so? Yeah, just about an hour. In in fact, when you were discussing Silbury, uh, I quickly emailed both Richard and Kimthea uh, diagrams of the internal structure and the seven steps. Oh, you found it. You got it. Oh, yeah. wonder, wonder. Yeah. So okay, that's well, in your email. Let me. Well, uh, we're wondering. Did you send it to Kimthea? I did send it to okay. Kimthea's email. Yes. So let me refresh and see if she has been able to put it in your items. Um, okay, there's I need, all. I need to find my items. Okay, you, you, <laughs> you go to Fast Links under the banner on the guest page and click on your name versus there Fast Links to items. Because you have so much stuff tonight, she had to put you on a separate page. So. Yeah, but I'm getting the page from last week. You are, yes, exactly. Because I, I wanted you to quickly reprise the National Cathedral and why it's connected to all the amazingly oh, cool I... stuff. You don't oh, you don't okay. have to do a lot, just you know, so people have the pictures to, to reference in terms of the connection. Gotcha. I so try to be logical to about this. We'll start at the beginning. <laughs> start with number one. We've been talking all evening about this bizarre conference which was held on November tenth, which reeks of ancient connections and future ufology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought we would start with why the hell did they hold this of all places at the National Cathedral? And now, of course, end of story, the National Cathedral is intimately connected to all of the stuff that Maria has been talking about for the last two hours. So So start there. Well, the National Cathedral is uh, a true Gothic cathedral. It's not old, but it's uh, based on the same architecture that we see all over Europe, which means that it's a tesseract, which is a fourth-dimensional figure in three dimensions. So if you were going to... A fourth-dimensional cube. Yes. And a cube is two interlocked tetrahedrons, and the tetrahedron is basically... You know, the symbol of the physics. And Maria, the one thing I forgot to mention, 
there are only seven symmetry spins of a tetrahedron in three dimensions, which is why there's a seven-step pyramid hiding under Silbury Hill. Interesting. <laughs> it's so cool. It all is coming together. <laughs> Sorry, Georgia. Keep, keep wow. going. Keep that, going. That's okay. So if you were going to have a conference that uh, opens this world to another world or dimension or level of being, uh, a tesseract is the perfect architecture to do that in. Uh, but the interesting thing about this is that there are numerous connections between this cathedral and Glastonbury in England. Um, we know that historically the United States is sort of a child of Britain, but there's a deeper esoteric connection as well. Um, too long to go into, but esoterically, every chakra, major, minor, and minute, has a higher correspondence within the head, which means that there is a heart center within the head. Glastonbury is this higher mystical heart center. Um, it's interesting that in the Bible, there are two accounts of Jesus' birth. Uh, one is the one where you have the shepherds in the field. Uh, with the announcing angels and, you know, the, the animals around the manger, that kind of thing. That's really the lower birth of the opening of the lower heart center or the beginning of the spiritual path. The higher heart center is the account where the wise men show up uh, with three gifts, symbolic of gold being the riches of the physical world, frankincense being incense that purifies the emotional or astral sphere and myrrh the bitterness of the mind so there's a connection from this country uh, this national cathedral to the higher heart in britain which is glastonbury and that connection is through the saint joseph of arimathea in our national cathedral, under the high altar at the first floor is a chapel dedicated to Joseph of Arimathea, who was Jesus's uncle, who held Roman offices as well as uh, a place in the Sanhedrin. So he was a pretty important guy. He was the one that supplied the tomb and possibly the material for the shroud. Uh, he is the one that's tied up with all of the legends uh, with the Holy Grail. And just as St. Peter in Rome is the lower heart of Christianity, the outward church uh, that sort of dropped its focus and became secular um, and political, uh, the mystical line of Christianity, uh, kind of headed by Joseph of Arimathea, has always been in place. Every religion around the world has an outer court and an inner court. And Joseph of Arimathea and his connection to the Grail Saga uh, represents the inner mysteries or the inner court. And so I've got a couple pictures up there of the National Cathedral, St. Joseph's Chapel, a couple of stained glasses showing Joseph of Arimathea, under that, on number five, is a stone chair that's part of the St. Joseph Chapel that's made of the stone from Glastonbury Abbey. 
And, of course, a couple pictures down, there's the Moon Rock, where the conference took place. And uh, some newer uh, contributions to Gothic architecture, including the Darth Vader gargoyle. And on the grounds, there is a thorn tree between the St. Albans Boys' School and the National Cathedral, which is taken from a cutting from St. Joseph's staff that grew the thorn on Weirial Hill in Glastonbury, which in the last few years has been savaged. But there are other... they are uh, cuttings. There are cuttings of the tree on the abbey grounds, which are protected, and that, that tree is still flourishing. And that kind of wraps it up from last week. <laughs> See, that wasn't hard. So where do you it's want interesting, to... Sorry, it's interesting yeah. to note that, you know, if I, if I may, just to say that uh, before the Glastonbury Abbey was built, uh, there was the first church of all yeah. Christendom built <laughs> by Joseph of Arimathea, and it was connected to the St. Michael ley line and the Mary Current that entwines that lane uh, and yeah. it was dedicated to St. Mary and the geometry of that uh, according to the late John Michel was that the dimensions were the same as Stonehenge and if you take the diameter which of the blue stone circle at Stonehenge he claims is 79.20 that's feet and inches 79.20 Instead of using feet, you now change that to 100 miles. You have the diameter of the earth encoded into the first church of Christendom, which was based on <laughs> the dynamics of Stonehenge. Of course, yeah, of course, the, the, of course. the story is that uh, when, when uh, the crucifixion took place and Joseph uh, had to get out of town fast, uh, he owned tin mines in Cornwall. And... That's where he got all his money. He had his own fleet of ships and uh, land in, in Cornwall. And the story is that Lazarus and Mary Magdalene uh, went with him. They were dropped off in France. Lazarus became the first bishop there uh, of Marseille. And, uh, and some say that Mary, the mother of Jesus, also accompanied Joseph of Arimathea. And that first chapel... Uh, which it was built on as part of the Abbey grounds, and you can still see the site today. It has a St. Joseph's uh, Chapel there, which is underground like our St. Joseph's hmm. Chapel in, in, uh, in Washington. Um, and uh, uh, it was the first church dedicated to Mary because uh, the veneration of the Virgin was not something that was widespread at that particular time so uh there's lots of i mean we could spend months just talking <laughs> about you know all of the interesting connections there but the point is that our connection in this country um to this esoteric lineage is through joseph of arimathea and glastonbury and uh Without spending months on Glastonbury, I thought tonight I would just highlight a couple of points that might be interesting for people to know about and follow up on. Okay, before you do that, let me, let me kind of do a setup here. For someone who's kind of politically into this stuff and has been tracking NASA and the Congress and 
national space policy and all that, the idea that you would have the first major conference in Washington in the post-UFO disclosure era held at the National Cathedral, not at the Kennedy Center, not on Capitol Hill, not at some hotel in downtown, but, but at the cathedral, you know, my, you know, bumps went ding, 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 ding. There's got to be a deeper set of levels and connections. And then Georgia hit me with these, all these Glastonbury links that are both overt and covert and very, very Emily Dickinsonian. And then, of course, she said, oh, and by the way, do you know about the Glastonbury Zodiac? So we got a conference on outer space up to and including extraterrestrials. Ms. Haynes, step forward, please, and take a bow. And now we've got a Glastonbury Zodiac in an ancient landscape that Maria, for the last couple hours, has been regaling us with ley lines and structures dedicated to planets that light up in the physics when the right alignments, you know, uh, take place. <clears throat> so this deep levels of connection between the terrestrial and the celestial anchored now in modern politics as disclosure is about to be born in Washington, D.C., connecting all the way back to this ancient landscape of England, which is so immersed in this time and lure and lore. It's unmistakable. So, Georgia, you're on. <laughs> well, when, when Joseph... Um... Uh, af again, after the crucifixion, when he uh, came back to Britain, uh, obviously and logically, because he owned land there, uh, he was given, books say, are 12 hides of land by the king at that time, Avaragas. Now, it's not really clear what dimension a hide of land was. Most people think, you know, it was you know, some sort of uh, measurement like an acre or something like that. But there's another perspective, and that is that the 12 hides of land were the hides of the beasts that were the signs of this zodiac. Oh, hides, H-I-D-E-S. Exactly. And 12, the number 12 is critical here, folks. Yes, yes. And, of course, this whole area um, is... Uh, amazing. <laughs> so if you'll have your guests look at uh, my pictures there. Um, We're down number to number 12. Number 12 is... if, if Which is very wants, ironic, incredibly ironic. <laughs> <clears throat> if anybody wants more information, this is the classic work um, by Mary Kane uh, on the Glastonbury Zodiac, and it has all kinds of fabulous pictures and little details that will just amaze you. Um, so that's the book to go to. The, the next picture is a map of uh, this particular zodiac, and we'll see several different pictures. And when this. you click on them, they get much bigger. Yes, and you'll need to do that. Uh, the zodiac itself is a little more than 12 miles across. How many miles? 12. Of course, of course. <laughs> and that is not including the outlying figure, which is called the Gert Dog, the Gert Dog of Langport. Um, there's uh, 
uh, an old uh, English Christmas carol, the girt dog of Langport, he burned his long tail, and we go singing wassail, wassail. Um, At the very end of the dog's tail is a town called Wag. (laughs) And so this zodiac is partly natural, and nobody knows how old, and partly man-made or man-enhanced. Mm. There, oh, there so, are... sorry, sorry, Georgia, let me interrupt. Yes. Uh, Maria, <clears throat> we have yes. side views, interior views, and a perspective aerial oblique, all in sketches and diagrams, as number 33, courtesy of Georgia in Georgia's items of Silbury Hill. So now you can see the conical pyramid under the hill in all its seven magnificent chalk layers. Yeah, if if everybody scrolls down, you can see it there at the end of my my pictures there. Yes, I mean, uh, yeah, I've been talking about that for some time. And just thinking about, you know, black dogs, again, if we go back to the great author of Geomancy, uh, John Michel, he always said black dogs associated with the guardians of ley lines. And the girt dog uh, is the guardian, if you will, that's how a lot of people see, see it over here, as being the guardian of the Zodiac. And I had the great fortune of meeting Mary Kane once in mm. Kingston. She found another Zodiac there as well. Yes, the Glastonbury Zodiac is not the only uh, Zodiac found uh, in in Britain, but it's one of the largest and the most famous, certainly. Uh, Another thing is that in Celtic lore, there are three sacred animals, the dog, the the roebuck, and the lapwing. The the dog guards the secret, Uh, the roebuck hides the secret, and the lapwing disguises the secret. So we have the dog both guarding and uh, uh, keeping watch over the, the Zodiac, Glastonbury. Um, the, the next picture, number 14, shows two different versions. Just like uh, uh, Alfred Watkins was the gentleman that sort of brought the whole idea of ley lines into modern thought, uh, there was a woman named Catherine Maltwood that was credited with discovering the Glastonbury Zodiac, although there are certainly references to it in all kinds of works and songs going back much, much, much earlier. Um, The picture number 14 shows uh, the original one that Catherine Maltwood uh, discovered and the one that Mary Kane uh, went a little further in elaboration. There's a couple of differences in the modern zodiac. Um, cancer in the this old zodiac is a ship, not a crab. And this, of course, is the ship of initiation. We think of the ship that bore Arthur to Avalon to heal from his grievous wounds. Um, the sign of Libra is a descending dove. And it's very interesting that, of course, the dove is associated with Isis, the Virgin Mary, um, the Holy Spirit. Here in the United States, on a lot of bumper stickers where they show evangelical descent of the Holy Spirit with this stylized dove, the stylized dove is the dove of Glastonbury. <laughs> they probably don't know that, but that's, that's the same shape. 
Um, Capricorn is a unicorn in this old zodiac. Uh, Pisces has not only the two fishes, vertical and horizontal, but between them is Cetus the sea monster. And um, in some drawings, it looks very Nessie-like rather than fish-like, strangely mm. enough. Uh, Virgo is shown as um, sort of a witch-like figure with the tall Welsh hat holding a, a, a broom or a sheaf of corn, and she is pregnant, the pregnant virgin. But the interesting one for us is Aquarius. Now, remember, Aquarius is the water carrier, but it's an air sign. So in the Glastonbury Zodiac, uh, Aquarius is a phoenix. And the eye of the phoenix is Glastonbury Tor. But in its beak is Chalice Well, which I'll talk about in a minute. So this phoenix is still a water carrier. Interesting. So the next uh, picture, number 15, is an overlay of actual stars on top of the Glastonbury Zodiac. And it shows how perfectly the stars fit uh, with these particular signs. Wondrous, wondrous. Do we have any idea, uh, George, do we have any idea how old the Zodiac is? Has anybody tried dating? Not that I know of. Maybe Maria would, would know more than I on that. But some of it is, is ancient, ancient, ancient. And, and again, some of the man enhancements are a little newer. And, of course, a lot of it is, you know, offset by modern farms and roads and things like that. But the older areas, for instance, that are defined as streams and, and things like that, um, I don't know if there's been any dating as to how old this thing is. I, I do know that that um, hints of it were certainly found in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, um, even though the, the knowledge of the Zodiac was eclipsed for a while. You know, when, when Henry VIII was pulling down all of the, uh, the Catholic cathedrals, um, he he burned Glastonbury, which was a major place of pilgrimage, because Glastonbury, the, the Bishop of Glastonbury, w- wouldn't give up its secrets. Hmm. And, and, of course, Henry, you know, immediately thought of treasure and things like that. But of they course. were much more important secrets. And that bishop was taken to the top of the tour and beheaded. Um, so, uh, so we have no, no idea how old the... Zodiac is. You, you, you might be able to date the Zodiac by, uh, as it's been suggested by a few Brit researchers, by the stars on Taurus oh, and Aldebaran, which anchor in, yeah, which anchor in Taurus and Scorpio into the Zodiac. And some people suggest that it's around the age of Taurus because that would have been rising at the time. But that's just just one one. Well, remember, if, if if you look at you know Taurus was rising in this era like about five thousand years ago, but you go back twenty six thousand years before that, and twenty six thousand years before that. In other words, this dating always skewed toward the youngest date, whereas maybe they're much much older, which is what I strongly suspect. 
There's a couple of other things too, and, and we'll get to those in, in a minute in, in my pictures, but the, the, uh, the carving pattern on Glastonbury Tor, which is the Eye of the Phoenix, is a maze that we find on coins from Crete, ancient Crete. Okay. So, so that's also a helpful, you know, thing to date. Um, the next picture, number 16, is a Google Earth with the zodiac overlaid. So you can, again, get uh, a sense of how big this thing is. Uh, there's, again, we could go into each sign and find, you know, the names of towns and places that absolutely fit, you know. Um, obviously, we don't have time to do that this evening, but... Uh, I've got a couple here. Number 17 is Aries, and uh, it's it really needs to be rotated um, horizontally. And Aries is uh, the I'll tell you what, we're, we're at the bottom of the hour. Let's hold it there. My guest this morning is Georgia Lambert. We're talking about the Glastonbury Zodiac and the connection between Glastonbury, this ancient landscape, connected now obviously to the stars and to the zodiac against which the planets swirl and which modulates the physics between dimensions. And the UFO conference just held at the National Cathedral, which is demonstrably, overwhelmingly, redundantly connected to the Glastonbury landscape. You're on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The site is midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. Eight cents an episode, two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. 
And welcome back, everyone, to the last half hour of the Sunday night program, The Other Side of Midnight, here from the Land of Enchantment. And Georgia was in the middle of narrating the Glastonbury Zodiac connected in the landscape to the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., and a UFO conference that could have been held anywhere, but was held there. Okay. Um, so my wife got me this weird... Sorry about that, guys. Okay, Georgia, you're, you're on. Yes. Uh, we were looking at number 17, the sign of Aries. Uh, again, it needs to be rotated uh, clockwise a bit. But um, this, of course, Aries is the ram or lamb. And this turns out to be the prototype of the partial lamb, which is uh, the next... Uh, picture that I have. This is a very important Christian symbol. It was also a Templar symbol. And strangely enough, one of the intact Templar churches still around is in London, which is Temple Church in London. It still is a functioning church. And it's right next to uh, the Inns of Court, uh, which is the site of Francis Bacon's hangout when he was plotting um, colonization of the New World. He and his cronies hung out at the Inns of Court right around Temple Church. And it's interesting that the inner buildings of the Inns of Court on their cornerstones, they have the carved figure of a Pegasus uh, hitting a stone and water pouring from the stone. But the outer buildings of the Inns of Court on their cornerstone, have this paschal lamb, uh, which is the sign of Aries and relates in uh, mundane astrology to the head. The next, and again, we, we could spend you know a month on each of these signs. What you see on the ground is just stunning in relationship to the sign itself. The sign of Gemini, the two twins, are very interesting. You can see that in page uh, 19. Uh, One twin looks more like the Western uh, twin, uh, almost a Jesus figure, and the other is sort of sideways in a sort of lotus posture. Looks kind of like Buddha. Yes, at the paws of of the lion there. And... Number 20 shows you, uh, I've got the red outline of the Western twin that looks kind of like Jesus. Uh, The hands over the head are bound uh, with the palms together. And the face, half of it's cut away by farmland. But if you enlarge it, you can see that there's the hair, the eyes, half a mustache and beard, which is depicted by forest trees on the face. So uh, if, if these are really ancient, ancient, ancient uh, geoglyphs, landforms, there must have been some heritage where somebody kept, you know, the, the gardener kept upkeep. Yeah. They kept being yeah. maintained and maybe within families or priesthoods that were families, or in other words, some connected lineal descendants followed the ritual to maintain the forms. 
one would one would think and and obviously assume again you know the natural things like uh, rivers and stuff would have been there when we're talking about you know ancient British towns you know some of those little towns have been there since time out of mind and would have kept those particular places um, the next one, the number 21, is Aquarius, and um, it, do, it doesn't show up real great. But there's a couple of, of things in Aquarius that are important. Again, Glastonbury Tor, which is number 22, shows you this great conical hill. And you can see in the little picture there the ridges on the side mm. of the tour and the picture following that shows the maze a three-dimensional maze on top of glastonbury tour and this particular maze is found on coins in crete this maze is also found at tintagel which is traditionally the the birthplace of arthur well one of the birthplaces <laughs> of arthur uh wales has got a few <laughs> We're talking King uh, a few Arthur. Claims. King yes, Arthur, yeah. King Arthur. Um, there's a, a, a Tintagel, uh, there's a cave called Merlin's Cave that has this Cretan maze uh, drawn on it. And, you know, in, in Gothic cathedrals, these were temples for the masses. And everything about this temple was geared to have an effect upon not only the consciousness, but the subtle body of um, the, the practitioners that by law had to go to mass every week, you know, until the Reformation. Hmm. So, you know, the, the music that was played at particular times of year, um, the stained glass windows, which they found that the gold flakes in stained glass windows, when sunlight comes through it, it has an antibacterial effect oh uh, my. on the people inside. It's like you know oh medieval my, my, nanotechnology. My. Oh, my God. By the way, are there yes. seven layers on the tour? I'm counting seven. Yeah. Lucky seven. <laughs> there you go. Um so, you know, uh, there, there's, there's a lot in the architecture of a, of a true Gothic cathedral that affects the subtle body. And, you know, when we think of mazes, like, for instance, one of the most famous is the maze at Chartres Cathedral. Chartres, of course, was built on top of one of the greatest Druid colleges on the continent. Um, mazes means that you turn your body so that as you walk the maze, you face this stained glass window or that particular carving or, you know, it, it, it's sort of a, a, a mystical journey. And everything within the landscape of the cathedral facilitates that journey. I've always thought it would be a really neat thing if we could superimpose some of these mazes on the anatomy of the brain and follow the mazes to see what, mm. areas, of the, what areas of the brain are being activated at in oh, what sequence. Oh, how interesting. Yes, yes. So maybe somebody will have the technology to do that one of these days. But uh, to walk the maze on the tour, I've done it 
quite a few times. Uh, it takes to do it properly. It takes about four and a half hours, and that's if it's not raining. <laughs> because because when it rains, uh, the sheep leavings on the side oh, my, get my. very slippery. Slippery, yes. <laughs> so the the tour is interesting for so many different reasons. Uh, it said that there was once a standing stone circle on the top of the tour, but the Christians broke it up and, and used the stone to make the St. Michael's Church that's mm-hmm. on the top. But an earthquake came along somewhere in the 500s and leveled the church, but left the tower. So the Druids still have their standing stone on top of Glastonbury Tor, mm. in a way. Um, but um, it said that, that the tour was also the domain of the king of the underworld, or the king of the fairies, Gwyn Ap Nuss. And, uh, and sometimes you can still hear fairy bells um, in quiet moments on the tour, among other things. Mm. Of course, it's dedicated to St. Michael, uh, as most high places are. Um, The merry places are sacred wells, often healing wells, uh, and the high places are St. George and St. Michael. Which brings us to what's in the beak of the phoenix in the Glastonbury Zodiac, and that is Chalice Well. Uh, Chalice Well is um, a very, very ancient well. It's consistently putting out about 25,000 gallons a day. It's amazing. It's known for its healing properties. Um, uh, one one uh, subject that we might go into some night is the uh, savior, really, of Chalice Well, a fellow in it by the name of Wellesley Tudorpole, who saved Chalice Well from becoming a brewery. Oh, uh, my gosh. Yes. He was... Um, Which needs a, a lot of fresh water. Yes. He was a soldier during World War One, And uh, long story, but he uh, saved the lives of the family of the founder of the Baha'i faith. He was also a friend of Churchill and was responsible for the Silent Minute during World War II. And uh, uh, he founded a a trust, and so Chalice Well is now protected. The waters of Chalice Well are slightly radioactive and high in iron content, which turn it sort of red, uh, and it's traditionally been called the Blood Spring. Mm. And it's on a hill. Uh, right across from the tour, and there's several levels of it. Uh, number 24 is the high level of it, and um, you can see the opening there, and, and that goes down quite a ways. The next uh, picture is where the water actually comes out, and you can see the red coloring there in number 25. It's the water's coming out of a lion's mouth. I was going to say the pussycat is... Yes, and and of course, the lion is uh, associated with the heart center, and this is where you can uh, take the waters uh, away. There's another uh, level that I didn't show, but the the bottom level is the Chalice Well Pool, which is in the shape of a vesica piscis. 
which also has to do with the union of a higher and lower world. And they still have lots of ceremonies and baptisms and things that go on in the Chalice Well Gardens. It looks like Uh, number 24, the well in that first picture, also has a vesica Pisces on an iron lid that you close. Yes, Hmm. it does. Uh, And um, the... uh, Number oh, 27. 27 is a sketch. Of, yeah, there it is. Yes. There it is. Okay. And you can see what it looks like on the surface, that, that photo that we just saw. But then what's underneath is this chamber and this chair or seat or mm-hmm. something strange. Mm-hmm. May have been used for initiations. We don't know. Um, but it's extremely old. And um, the next picture is a painting that I did in the 80s that donated to the Chalicewell Trust. And it's, it's, uh, they have all rights of, of reproduction oh for it. Oh, my gosh. But you, you can are see... so talented. Oh, thank you. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was really fun doing that painting. I, I started going to Glastonbury 40 years ago. God, how did that happen? Anyway. Um, yeah, so it's it's one of their posters and uh, and cards that that they do. Now, the interesting thing about the blood spring of Chalice Well is it's right across the street from the White Spring. Hmm. Now, the the source of water for the blood spring at Chalice Well is completely different than the source of water for the White Spring. The, the Blood Spring, uh, its source goes up into the Mendip Hills and, and, um, uh, and Wookiee. By the way, weird trivia side point, mm-hmm. George Lucas named one of his critters the Wookiee. Yes. And another one of his critters, Tauntaun. This was the big snow kangaroo thing mm-hmm. called a Tauntaun. Wookie and Tauntaun are two places on either side of Glastonbury. Oh, good grief. Yeah. So right across the lane, it's not even a two-lane street. It's like a little country lane. But there's this little country lane distance between the Red Spring, the Blood Spring, and the White Spring. And the White Spring has a high calcium content and it gives this whitey deposit and it's inside and, and underneath the ground. So in physical dense, we have this outpicturing of the alchemical red and white mm-hmm. or the marriage of sun and moon or masculine and feminine. And even during World War II, uh, Wellesley Tudor Pole with the Chalice Well uh, and the Silent Minute and Dion Fortune had her little house right at the foot of the tour at the White Spring. So we have these two um, esoteric warriors, really, uh, during World War II, right across the lane from one another. Amazing. Again, re- red and white, masculine, feminine. Uh, y- you know, it's, it, it's amazing. And there is some speculation that perhaps in ancient times, there was a place further on down uh, that has yet to be discovered where 
the Druids allowed the Red Spring and the White Spring to mingle. Oh. That hasn't happened. That discovery hasn't happened yet, but perhaps it will. Um, you can see a couple of pictures there of different areas of the White Spring in my pictures. Including there, an interesting there, vortex, number yeah. 29. Yeah. That that's that's really really interesting. It, it, it's in a building that was made in the 1800s, and you go in the building, and underneath there's this sort of cave where the water comes out, very similar to you know the the cave underneath uh, Bath where the the mm-hmm. sulfur spring comes out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very very amazingly powerful. So we've got the red spring and the white spring, very alchemical. You know, in Freemasonry, they talk about, uh, and Rosicrucianism as well, they talk about the divine marriage in the upper room. And the upper room is, of course, this room at the top of 33 stairs. Um, Mystically, the 33 stairs are the 33 vertebrae of the spinal column. And the room at the top of the stairs is an area in the brain called the third ventricle where the pituitary gland and the pineal gland live. And these relate to the ashana center in front of the forehead and the crown chakra above the physical head. And at certain very advanced stages of meditation when the crown chakra and the ashana center are activated in tandem they produce effects on the pineal and the pituitary gland. Now, within the human body, the cerebrospinal fluid is manufactured in two big areas on either side of the brain called ventricles. This cerebrospinal fluid pools in the center of the head, and then it moves down a narrow uh, conduit to the back part of the brain and then down the spinal column and then back up to be reabsorbed in the head. That takes about 28 days. So Which happens inter- to be the orbit period of the moon. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, and also, you know, the breath of the earth. So we are geared, not just the feminine cycle, but we are actually geared to harmonize with these greater rhythms. Hmm. Now, the thing uh, is that, again, there, there are two levels of the birth of the Christ consciousness, the beginning opening of the heart and the adult son born within the head at a later stage of the path. One of the Western symbols for the crown chakra was a unicorn. And the story of the unicorn is that it lives in this forest where this stream exists, which is poison. It's poison for all the other beasts. So when the unicorn dips his head in the water, his horn touches the water and heals the waters and makes it safe for all the other beasts to drink. Mm. So when the, when the Christ consciousness, the unicorn consciousness, is born within the head at a certain level of development, the pituitary and pineal glands release new hormones and essences into the cerebrospinal fluid, which then circulates down the spinal column where all the other chakras funnel into the spine and the waters are changed and healed for all the other beast setters below the head to drink. 
And so we've got with this interplay of the white spring and the blood spring, an outer manifestation of some very real inner mysteries um, that happen in consciousness at certain stages of the path. Hmm. And the final couple pictures there, um, Glastonbury Abbey grounds. Uh, Maria was talking earlier about the Michael and Mary lines going right through there, right through the high altar mm-hmm. area. And the final picture is the St. Joseph's Chapel there at Glastonbury, uh, underneath the ground, which is a twin or echo of the one in our national cathedral. Hmm. You notice the arch? Which no, arch? The, the one the, the in the St. Joseph's Chapel. Uh, the, the, the big one or yeah. the one right over the chapel itself? No, the big one. It's, it's a, a typical Gothic arch. It's a portion of a, what's called a relu triangle, which is a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional tetrahedron. Well, there you go. <laughs> two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional thing and the tesseract, the three-dimensional representation mm, of a exactly, four-dimensional thing. Exactly, yes, yes. Okay, we've got about six, seven minutes here. I want you to both expostulate extemporaneously what the hell is the connection between Washington, a obvious admission that UFOs are real, their connection to us somehow, and this landscape. Well, I mean, this is the connection as above, so below. You know, we are related to the stars. And uh, all throughout the globe are remembrances of that. Some more obvious than others. Hmm. Can we be a little more specific? See, I'm thinking that there's something that's connecting our literal history, who we are, these various beings. Remember the long-headed guys and the round-headed guys and this alien or ET being that appears in the midst of them and that this is all not by chance. They chose that cathedral because that was the link planned when this is supposed to come out to be the focal point connecting these two pieces of real estate. Well, Washington, D.C. is the the head center or crown chakra of the nation. And the cathedral is at the highest point within that particular area. So, again, if you were going to bring in something from a higher or different dimension, you would want to bring it in First and foremost, it would make its appearance at the highest possible frequency uh, of the receiving entity. And that would be the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. Maria? Well, I think on Glastonbury Tour, you have the Mary and Michael Earth Currents, and they, they wind around and they meander around the tour. And it's symbolized where Mary creates like a cup area, 
and Michael uh, goes into that, that it was sexual union of where things can be born of worth and merit. So things can be born on, on the phoenix, something, you know, wonderful and new. So I think the symbolism mm. of that is to, with the UFOs, is to make it birth it into the consciousness of humanity, get us all used to the fact. And Glastonbury as well was its own country, like the city of London. And that's why Henry VIII wanted to ransack it. It was rich and mm -hmm. it was its own country because within that own country, again, people used to pilgrimage there to get healing and to help manifest things in their lives. So I think Glastonbury will help manifest the, uh, the, the consciousness of uh, extraterrestrials. Bingo. Who in this model, our model, is family. I think, guys, we're talking family yes. and how ancient the family is and how mm -hmm. widespread the family is. And we're just one part of... Remember Neil Armstrong and that very mysterious wording that's one small step for man one giant leap for mankind we're in this model we're man but all our relatives out there the humanoid beings that suddenly mainstream astrobiology is i mean did you see that a couple of days ago public published that oh the the humanoid form could be everywhere we're not looking at intelligent spiders or dolphins or whatever we're looking at humanoids humans and in, in the in the you know cultural parlance they're getting us ready for the family the reintroduction to the family i think well i think it was very significant that they they not only had it at the cathedral but pretty close to right under that window with the moon rock in it yes <laughs> oh gosh it's wheels within wheels within wheels within wheels. Okay, a couple of minutes. Uh, Maria, did we leave anything out of what you wanted to say tonight? No, I think we've covered it really because, you know, it, it was about looking at the monuments through what they could visually, how we could visually see them with light and also remembering the ancestors, uh, the long skull people and possibly the, the direct evidence of an extraterrestrial being within the Stonehenge environs. And if we only knew where he or she went, where did they take that yes. that that um, that skeleton? What box is it lying in in Indiana Jones vault? <laughs> Georgia, what <laughs> yes. do you think? What do you think is going to happen next? Like big possibilities <laughs> on the on Christmas Eve. Your guess is as good as mine, Richard. If I had that kind of intuition, I would uh, be a rich woman today. <laughs> well, you are rich. Uh, so certainly, you know, the physics is lining up for possibilities. Now, whether humanity takes those possibilities or not, you know, that's always choices that we make. Um, but as you say, the surf's up and uh, time to catch our boards <laughs> what a wonderful way to end hey guys i want to thank you so much maria wheatley and georgia lambert you play so well together you have definitely inspired me and um as i said next week maybe by saturday i'll be able to talk about the next uh, phase of the story because there will be a next phase 
I'm just not sure that we're going to be ready to unveil it in time. So until next week, same time, same bat channel, the other side of midnight is going away for seven days, actually six, and we'll be back. So until then, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone, and keep looking up. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.